Welcome listeners to time before an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. We as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Thought about getting it an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live. At several locations, you can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to a bb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening again it's a b i b i t u m i dot com forward slash time for an awakening and the stream is running there or you can download tune in the tune in radio app is a free app that'll go on any of your devices and in that search engine just type in time for an awakening there you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had the bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection again it's time for an awakening Radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook. And time for an awakening media is there. Always full of the latest podcasts, the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that time for an awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make it one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here in the city of Philadelphia on this rainy, kind of raw Sunday evening, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening in conversation and then we'll transition into uh, a sort of an open forum after we are going to hear from our guest this evening, activist, educator, and founder of All This Math, LLC, Brother Akil Parker is with us to talk about All This Math and his dedication as a mathematician 
to empower black youth through mathematic education. And we'll be back. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. The mothers, the long fathers, and the And I got the wrong. <laughs> I got the wrong announcement situated. Uh, I just got to play flat, fast and loose here. And again, uh, let me make that announcement again. To join the program, to be involved in the conversation, uh, ask a question or comment, you can dial 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. And we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. <laughs> Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. 
from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 713 in the city of Philadelphia on this raw Sunday evening. And before we get started with our program, let me welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street, Brother Richard is with us brother richard yes sir brother elliot how are you sir uh hey he said it's raw it's raw it's, I mean, what's what's going on with the i don't know what's going on with elliot i mean last week i was like all loving the the, the warmth and now all of a sudden well, i think we back in uh the fall or something but other than that everything's good yeah well all i know is don't put your long johns back on <laughs> I, I, sorry, <laughs> you know, I, I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna mess, for, mess up the time for waking the audience. Long johns and, and shirts, you know. I'm like, I, I, I can't, I can't. I, I'm telling you, I, I'm a true African. I don't play with this cold. It's, it's you know, no, I ain't going for it. And, and a sweatshirt and sweatpants mm-hmm. yeah, right. and a jacket. You know? uh, so, but I, I wonder. Look, with the, um, I think you know, this all this here shooting stuff in space. I wonder if they got they messing up. I mean, they already messing things up. But is that really like throwing the the season off? You know, uh, I don't know what's going on, Elliot. But I ain't playing with them. Yeah, well, it, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to uh, brother Keel. You know. Um, I always look forward to hear, you know, how he's uh, he's developing his uh, craft as far as teaching math and, you know, and now being able to um, assist young, you know, the young scholars and in, in being able to maybe assist them in, what's that, mathematical formula. And you know what, Ellie, I think that that process, uh, you know, I, sometimes when I listen to Brother Akil, um, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm zero in math and zero in mechanics. You know, I just walk around. But uh, I wonder, can we put our situation in an equation and um, kind of get to a solution that we are actually moving or at least to be able to evaluate? Um, you know, I wonder if at what point we'll be able to do that or has some done that already? You know, it's, it's always good to that we talk to uh, some of these brothers and sisters that's uh, that's doing things here um, locally, and it and it kind of 
uh, they kind of reach outside the city with a lot of the work that they're doing, whether you're talking about uh, Brother Ova, uh, whether you're talking about Professor Carlton Jones, um, Tommy over there at Peace Park, and uh, Brother Keel, you know, working with the youth and education, which is very important. Um, he's working on some things now, and I know he's been busy being at these schools have been uh, semi-shut. Well, they were shut down for a while, and I think they had limited openings with a lot of these school, public schools here in, in Philly. But I know that don't stop his work and what he's doing. And uh, we're going to spend some time with him talk, uh, talking about some of his new initiatives. And we're going to transition over into some uh, conversation there that you can get involved in. You can get involved in all of it, really, by dialing 215-490-9832. Let's welcome in our guest, activist, and educator, and founder of All This Math, LLC. Brother Keel Parker. Brother Keel, how are you, sir? I'm good. Good evening. Glad to have you with us, man. Hey, what's up now, bro? Hey, what's going on? Hey, Brother Keel, listen, before we uh before we get started and uh talking about uh, you know, all this math and some of the things that you're doing with uh with a lot of our youth here locally and pr- and probably outside the city because I know that you you got reach and you got the things that you're doing locally and and uh in the region. And uh, I want you uh, also in, in the conversation, I want you to talk about the histematics and how you kind of incorporate that in teaching math to our children or whether it's one and the same to you. We'll find that out in conversation. But uh, tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself and, and what you've been doing. Well, a little bit about myself. Well, I'm, I'm currently, I guess I'll start with the current state of affairs and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack, mm-hmm. backtrack that. Um, currently, I'm a professor at Cheney University. I teach math math courses there and also math education courses there, meaning I'm teaching the uh, education majors um, math, um, the type of math, how to teach the type of math that they will be responsible for teaching on the K through 8, in the K through 8 space once they graduate and matriculate through Cheney. That's one of the things I'm currently doing. I'm also teaching at um, a night school program called One Bright Ray. Well, it's a, it's an alternative um, education, alternative school contracted with the school district of Philadelphia. I teach in the night school component for people that have previously separated from the school district of Philadelphia, basically um, have dropped out, so to speak, for, for various reasons. And um, also just, you know, building, been building up all this math for the past two years and doing a lot of, a lot of private math tutoring, which I'm trying to um, scale back on and, uh, kind of reassign a lot of my energy towards building up the YouTube channel where there's video content available for, you know, just for the, for the people, just available for the people and youth and parents of the youth that want to be able to help their children with their homework. And also teachers can use it as, as support, video support that's self-paced for, you know, for young people or whomever to, um, you know, just to, just to, for once and for all, you know, we have a we have a viable resource that's culturally relevant to us because everything is culturally relevant. The question you have to ask is whose culture is it relevant to? We always have to ask that question. I know a lot of times when we, when, when black people, you know, like such as ourselves, when we talk about things being culturally relevant, we know that we're talking about things that are culturally relevant to black people and to black children. But, um, you know, really it's just about, it really should push us toward nationalism anyway and pan-African nationalism because even, you know, cultural relevancy is more of a conversation when we're in a space that's not controlled by us and we have to kind of like 
um, try to navigate and finagle, you know, with, you know, with the white folks that are in control so that we can kind of be able to, you know, teach things to our children that it might be 99% of the population of these schools when, you know, the, the better, the better solution, at least long-term or intermediate term would be for us to just create our own independent spaces. So therefore it would just go without saying, like, of course, of course it's culturally relevant because we run this, we run this, you know, from the top to the bottom, from left to right. So naturally everything we, everything we do is going to be culturally relevant to our children. Um, beyond that, um, I just been doing a lot of, uh, you know, like I said, you know, I'm adding content to the YouTube channel and also going on different platforms in the past month or so. And I will be, I, I hope to continue going on more and more platforms just to kind of get the word out and let people know about all this math and, and the YouTube channel. Um, so that, you know, people know it's a resource. I, I believe that right now, and for probably about the last few years, Khan Academy has been kind of the industry standard, but from my work with tutoring, and even having to tutor children whose teachers or school districts or school systems have kind of latched on to Khan Academy as the industry standard. Even, you know, a lot of the students don't really understand the Khan Academy video. So if I find myself, you know, having to tutor our children and having to help them with understanding Khan Academy videos, you know, with a lot of, with a lot of things, you know, we as, as people of African descent, we should just cut out the middleman and just create our own thing. So that's really, another reason that you know I'm, I'm i created the the youtube channel in order to kind of scale up and you know make myself more accessible because i could you know talk to a classroom of, of 20 students and that's fine but you know what if you know that same lesson could be delivered to 20,000 or you know 200,000 or, or however many or 20 million you know and not even just in the united states but globally you know because math 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 has some has many universal aspects to it and, you know, like, you know, I like that, uh, you know, in the, before the show started, there was the, um, the brief quote from, from the late uh, Dr. John Henry Clark. And, you know, one of the quotes that always resonates with me from Dr. Clark is that anything that we're involved in should be a tool for all liberation, no matter what we're doing, no matter what area of life, no aspect of life, no matter what we're doing. So if I'm, I'm going to be a mathematician or mathematics teacher or a math professor, then that should be something that I use as a tool for our collective and not just individual liberation, not just so I can be comfortable and my, my children can be comfortable, but so that we all can be comfortable, you know, and we can, we can move toward that. And, um, you know, so that's really, that's really what, what all this math is really about. Like, you know, using it, using this, using mathematics as a tool for us to, for us to get free, you know, um, cause it really hasn't been, Largely, it has not been marketed to us that way. It's actually been, been marketed to us as something that we should try to avoid because, it, you know, it doesn't really have relevance, or at least it has relevance for people that are going to control us. And that if we stay in our place within the, the narrative of, of white supremacy mythology, then, you know, we, if we accept that narrative, then we also have to accept the fact that we don't need to know math because it's more beneficial to the, the narrative of white supremacy mythology. Um, you know, so those are, I guess that's, that's a little bit of my, my background. Um, I've been a, been a high school math teacher for the past 16 years. I've been teaching on the college level for the past three years. I've also done some teaching at LaSalle, over at LaSalle University, some math education coursework over there. I've taught, I've also taught, um, you know, uh, a practice prep, practices the, uh, the standardized test that teachers 
have to take for certification. It's one of their certification requirements. I've taught a, a practice math course because a lot of a lot of teachers they finish their coursework, but then they again, you know, even even people that are education majors in schools like have a have weaknesses and deficiencies in mathematics, just like many people do. So I taught a, ca- a class involved with that, and um, yeah, so I just been been teaching a lot of math over the years on in, you know different charter schools in Philly. Um, I was in the, the school district of Philadelphia for the toward the you know in, for about three or four years. I taught at Central High School for a year, and I taught at Overbrook for a couple of years. So I kind of saw the the difference in dynamics between Overbrook High School and Central High School, but I also saw the similarities, which is even more important because then we get into the issue of miseducation versus diseducation, you know. Um, and then they, that teaching at Central really kind of inspired a lot of thought in me and had me re reevaluate the what we consider to be good schools. You know, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, while there's academic rigor, and that's cool, you know, we need academic rigor to develop ourselves intellectually, but it's still going to be subjected to that uh, that cultural violence, that cultural imperialism. You know, so as a as a black child in Philly going to a school like Central, and I and I, I get it, you know, because I, you know, I went to the, a similar type of high school in, in Baltimore, you know, where you're still confronted with that cultural imperialism. But yet the school is academically challenging and academically rigorous. So parents have to make a decision. It's almost like a trade-off. It's almost like a, almost like a lesser of two evils type thing. You know, you're going to get the cultural imperialism and the cultural violence, which some people are aware of, but a lot of people are not aware of. Um, but you want the academic rigor for your child. So even with that, you know, the community and the households and the community really, you know, more so, has to be able to, has to become equipped to, provide that that groundwork and that foundation where our children are kind of um, 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 prepared to go into war because it really is I mean school in general any school that we don't control like uh, like the late well not the late but um, H. Brad Brown or um, Jamil Alameen he said like anything that we don't control will be used as a weapon against us and these school school systems we don't control they use as weapons against us so our children are really going to war you know similar to Jacob Carruthers work you know, intellectual warfare, his book, you know, on, on that topic, this really is intellectual warfare inside these schools. But if we prepare our schools and arm them with the cultural awareness and also the political awareness, then, you know, then they can go in, you know, you go into a central high school, you go into a girl's high, you go into even a masculine, you know, in Philly. And, you know, you already know what it is. You know what to expect. You know this is war. So when the teachers, um, when the when the racism, which is, within a lot of the teachers in those spaces manifest itself in tangible ways that are very recognizable. Like as a child, you already know it and you expect it. And you also know how to defend yourself against it because the community has provided you with that, that, um, that, edu- that, that type of education. Um, I focus more on the, um, the academic aspects and that's not just, you know, Philadelphia, that's in any city, any city where there are competitive schools, academically competitive schools that, in the meantime that we send our children to, because we don't have the the larger schools that are academically competitive that we control and we run and operate um, ourselves, then, um, you know, we can, we can, we can provide this, you know, for our children. So that's, and that's also part of, part of uh, all this math. You want, you want me to go on or you want to, you want to jump in? Well, well, let me, let me, let me, because I I want you to kind of, well, you, you've, You've sort of done that, but I want you to kind of break into that uh, your method of 
teaching math, the histobatics. But before you do that, uh, let me ask you a question, uh, 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 Brother Keel. Uh, teaching at a lot of these different uh, venues, uh, both on the high school level, college level, uh, and university level, to be honest, college, university level, and you see the the way a lot of these subjects are being taught. Um, just from a layman, you talk to some of the uh, people on the street, and I'm talking about our people, and they talk about the way these schools are, and some of our children not grasping certain subjects, and math is definitely one of them. But I talk with some teachers that come into my place of business, and they tell me about them not having the proper equipment. Sometimes they got to go in their pocket to buy supplies and things of that nature. And, you know, helping the children is kind of frustrating to them because they don't have access to the materials that some of these other schools have. Talk about it from your perspective of somebody that's conscious, you know, because a lot of these people I'm talking to, they, they might not be on the level that we're talking about. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, slow. Some of them might not look at things the way that I might or you might. Talk about it from a, from a perspective of somebody that's conscious of what's going on and you see what's happening in some of these venues. Give me some subtle ways or not so subtle ways that our children are being miseducated. If if okay, if you so follow what I you you, I, you if you follow the question I'm trying to ask, yeah, I mean that's a, that's, a, that's very broad. We could go a lot of a lot of direction, different directions with that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that seems subtle is just um, I don't want to call it erasure. It's because it's more of um, it's more of like benign neglect. It's more of like benign neglect in terms of um. In, in terms of specifically mathematics, when we talk about mathematics, it happens in every subject and in every discipline. But if we if we make it specific to mathematics, there's like a benign neglect in terms of leaving out the um, the contributions to, to world civilization that um, mathematicians of African descent um, have brought forth and have done. And that's uh, so when you think of math, what happens is you don't think of black people. So what ends up happening is it creates a space where, and, you know, I, oftentimes when I'm having these conversations, I'll reference Lisa Delpit's book, and she's an educator um, of African descent. And, you know, she, she you know, Lisa Delpit wrote a book. Her book was entitled Multiplication is for White People. And the reason she, enti- she titled that was because when she was doing observations in a school, and I think that she was in Louisiana, some school, but it was a young brother, a little black boy in an elementary school classroom. And she was having a conversation with him about his, about his schoolwork and whatnot. And one of the things he said that she took away um, from the conversation was that, you know, addition and subtraction, you know, that's, that's what we can do that. But, you know, the multiplication and division, that's for the white people. That's more complicated, you know? Um, And I think a large part of that comes from, just us not many of us not being able to identify ourselves within the realm of mathematics. We see mathematics as the exclusive domain of some other people and some people that don't look like us, which really is, it also creates a, a, another complex where you have this like, you know, Negro exceptionalism that takes place where 
if you're like me and you go to, you know, go to the, the citywide magnet schools growing up, whether it's your middle school, your high school or whatnot, and you do excel at math for at least most of the time while you're in these schools, then you start to feel like you're, be- you're different from everybody else and there's something wrong with them. And then, you know, you kind of, you're kind of being put in position to be weaponized against your own people <laughs> instead of being put in position to be a weapon to help defend your people and help to uplift your people, Right. Um, but you still, so even though you feel, even though you might find success in terms of understanding mathematics, excelling in mathematics, and being able to apply it in certain situations, you still end up feeling on some level like an honorary European. Because the thing that you're excelling at, you have been subconsciously or subliminally, dict- it's been subconsciously or subliminally dictated to you that that is not something that your people naturally do. That is something that other people do. You just happen to have um, had an opportunity to advance in it. So, you know, you know, don't think that, you know, this is something that's normal, like you're an anomaly, you know, but then there, but then, so that, again, that's where the education, this is one of the things we address in histematics um, going forward is, you know, we have to teach our young people that mathematics is something that is within their cultural DNA and it's within their history. And, you know, I mean, we, we, we can tell stories that are kind of anecdotal about um, our ancestors in ancient Kemet building pyramids, and that's a good foundation, but then we have to get more more deep into that, and we have to become more specific with that information and with that analysis of that, and we have to start naming names, who are the people, who are the pharaohs, who are the mathematicians, what were the actual measurements. we got to get real specific with it. Because it's easy when somebody somebody gives you like an anecdotal story, it's easy to kind of dismiss it, especially when we're up against so much um, contrasting adversarial propaganda that says that, you know, we didn't do that. But when you get into the specifics and the details and you're very explicit with those details and that information, then, you know, it's hard for young people to forget that. And even when they, whether, when they are confronted with that propaganda, saying that, you know, we're, we're not mathematically inclined and historically we weren't mathematically inclined or even when they, you know, the, you know, the Europeans or the, those that control the textbook, you know, cartel or, or whatnot, something else Dr. Clark talked about the textbook cartel, even when they kind of push these ideas that, you know, it was the Greeks that traveled down into ancient Kemet and actually built all the pyramids themselves. And then they went back home <laughs> and he told these like kind of silly stories and we're supposed to accept them as true. Um, because these people have have that are telling these stories have degrees from some of these institutions, right? Um, so yeah, so that's that's definitely one one sub, one subtle way of of the miseducation, just leaving out um, this this idea that people of African descent have ever even participated in mathematics and been, um, you know, been successful at it. I mean, and then Hollywood will produce movies, like recently we have the movie um, Hidden Figures, right, with the with the sisters that work with NASA um, and they'll do that. But then we have to be careful with that, especially when our children are exposed to that, because that's an, yet another story where Hollywood depicts again, like the magical Negro, right? So it's the magical Negro. So these black women basically had to save America. And then young people end up believing that that's really our role. Our role is to save America and that we've always been the ones to save America. But then we have to, you know, we have to expose that political contradiction because how is it that I'm supposed to save America, but America hates me and America is constantly trying to kill me and murder me and commit genocide against me. So why am I always trying to save America? Right. 
Um, but those are the stories that Hollywood wants to tell, and they want to frame the story in a certain way so that we should want to, again, and that's why I, I mentioned earlier about being, being, we- being weaponized against our own people, right? So, you know, we, we go off and, you know, we do well in mathematics, and then you go into college and, you know, you might get a mathematics degree or engineering degree, and then you end up working for one of these large corporations, um, a, a Lockheed Martin, a Northrop Grumman, or, or any, any of these organizations, any of these corporations that really don't care about us. Um, and the goal is to maintain, you know, European hegemony, white supremacy mythology. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation to be in because at the end of the day, you know, you need a, you need a paycheck. You need to be able to provide for yourself. You need to be able to provide for your family. Um, and that's why it gets back to, it's all, it all goes back to this idea of nationalism where we can create infrastructure for ourselves where we won't have to, where we can be able to provide for our families and provide for ourselves by doing things that are, that are serving ourselves and that we control those institutions and those organizations and those companies and those corporations or whatnot um, that are doing that work. Um, that's the hope. But without, without, without some type of Pan-African nationalism or Black nationalism or whatever we term it, that won't even happen. So we're going to have to continue to, you know, go to these other folks that don't have our best interests at mind or at heart, definitely, to um, be able to provide for us, provide our full, own food, clothing, and shelter, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, that's one example. Well, Brother Gil, listen, before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, I'm looking here at, <clears throat> it's a list here in the Guardian, and it listed the, the, the world's top 10, and they, they, they're supposed to be scanning history the top 10 best mathematicians. Now I'll go from the, because I don't know the, the one they list. Number one, I've, I've heard of him. These other ones I don't know of, but being that you're a mathematician, you're aware of these people. But, and this goes to what you're saying about um, how they push certain things that you are not supposed to be dealing with. I'm going to start at five. They got 10 here, but I'll just go from five on. Fifth, they got uh, a guy that was, uh, he was, uh, his name was Carl Frederick Glaus. Right. Okay. Yeah. He's number five. Number f- four is Leonard Euler. Right. He's got a number named that time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number three <laughs> is uh, Girolamo Gardano. I think he was the Italian guy, uh, Italian uh, during the Renaissance. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a go ahead. named after. Okay. Now, the, the number two is very interesting. And number one, number two is a woman, her name was Hypatia. Now, it says right. that Hypatia was a scholar at the library in Alexandria in the fourth century common era. Now, She's the number two person in math and history, according to this European that wrote this particular text or article. She was a scholar at the library in Alexandria in the fourth century common era. So what was she studying? She was a scholar at the library. She didn't, Greeks didn't establish that library and she was studying somebody else's text. So what, you know, I'm just, I'm throwing that out there because I don't know this woman. You know of these people because you're a mathematician and I'm quite sure when you was going through uh, your studies, they made you aware of these people. 
So I, well, let me I, say, go ahead. Let me say. Let me say a couple things. Go ahead. I consider myself a, a mathematician, but my my entry point into mathematics is more from the teacher side of it. So okay. a lot of a lot of the pure mathematics that a lot of people um, have been exposed to, I haven't been exposed to. Like the, a lot of the higher level, um, you know, linear algebra, differential equations, um, uh, combinatorics. You know, those th- when you get a math degree from um, you know a four year institution or a university. A lot of that mathematics I haven't studied, but what I have studied very heavily is, you know, algebra, the different algebra, algebra one, algebra two, geometry, um, some calculus, pre-calculus, um, even pre-algebra. Um, so I do believe that, like, with the with the definition of math of mathematicians, is I, I study mathematics um, as a practice, and I am a practitioner, and I study more so methods of, of teaching mathematics, um, I would classify myself as a mathematician, but I do think that there are, like, levels to this. Right. So and maybe I shouldn't. But at this point, um, that's how I look at it. Look at it. It's like there are levels to this. So maybe I might be selling myself short. Maybe I might not be. I'm not sure. But so I wanted to put that out there as well, because I don't I don't have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in mathematics. But I have studied a lot of mathematics. I put in a lot of a lot of hours and a lot of work um, with that. So I kind of just want to put a disclaimer out there with that. But I also there's research that I need to do also about Hypatia, the, the, the woman that you mentioned, mm-hmm. because there's some speculation that she was an African woman, that she was actually from ancient Kemet. Now, I know um, Europeans claim her as a Greek, but like many things, Europeans claim a lot of people. Um, and I don't, like, like I said, I, that's research I, I have to do. I don't know whether, whether you know, in a way that is conclu- conclusive that she was, in fact, African uh, from the African continent or not um so that's something else that's something else um that should be probably that should be addressed at some point because people have mentioned that to me that she was black you know they said that but i don't know it's kind of it's inconclusive with me at this point but you know but that's part but if she if she is in fact that just goes to show that's that's a certain type of consistency that you know the europeans have in terms of how you know they have typically wanted to whitewash almost everything you know, kind of take credit for everything that is positive or that is, has, is seen as, you know, um, has advanced humanity in some kind of way, people, places, things, anything, you know? Um, so those are just a couple of things I want, I want to throw, I want to throw in there. I yeah. Throw in there. And, um, and well, the, and the number one person that they have up at the top is, uh, is Pythagoras and Pythagoras. Yeah, they oh, yeah. credit him with the Pythagorean theorem. But, you know, I don't know how you can build pyramids or any structures without knowledge of geometry. So, you right. know. And that's, and that's, that's, it's documented that, you know, now this I do know. Because this research I have done. And it's conclusive to me that Pythagoras was Greek, but Pythagoras studied in ancient, in ancient Kemet for mm-hmm. 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that's that their books have been written on that. That's uh, studied um, with our ancestors. So, and then he went back, you know, and, um, but, I, but, the issue of marketing. Yeah, I, I'm at a position now where I spend less energy trying to reclaim people um, because I actually I actually look at it like, you know, if, if 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 Europeans if they want to tell their children that you know a white man discovered a squared plus b squared equals c squared or or recognize that pattern in nature because these are all mathematics is is the science of patterns. 
And really all it is is just a, a bunch of reoccurring, consistently reoccurring events in nature that we can that are observable and documentable. And some people have just seen them in history, have seen them so many times that they just write them down and they represent the relationship between different values using variables. That's really all math is. It's a science of patterns. It's no different than, you know, playing a video game and you've got to this certain level in the video game so many times and you know what's going to happen because you know the pattern of the different characters in the video game. It's really no different. And I think that, you know, I mean, that's all algorithms are. It's just a pattern. It's, like, it's an equation and a pattern. And that's why, you know, computer science is basically um, set up like that as well. It's all mathematics, the science of patterns. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, it's the only problem with, basically the only problem with, the, the problem with white people lying is that they're lying to our children. If they want to lie to their own children, I say let them. You know, but because our children are in the schools that they run and are in the schools that are subjected to the textbooks that they print, then our children get affected by their lives. So, but again, that's where we come into play, you know, because we, again, that's why I said earlier, we got to like arm, figure out ways that are efficient and effective to to kind of arm our children ahead of time. Okay. You know, so that when they, when they get exposed to the lie, they'll already know. Because they'll be like, you know, oh, my old head told me I was going to lie about this. <laughs> I'm, I already knew y'all was going to lie about this. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. I already know. I already know you're going to tell me Pythagoras. You know, you're going to say, you know, I'm going to get to this geometry class. You're going to tell me about the Pythagorean theorem. And then I'm going to be sitting there. Well, why is it named after him? How can he study it? Why, why are you name it after his teacher? Wouldn't that make more sense? How are you going to name it after the student? <laughs> name it after the teacher. Right? But but that's what y'all want to do. Y'all want to lie. Okay, cool. Go ahead lie. That's cool. Um but we just have to tell our children the truth. And, you know, in our spaces, we can tell our children the truth. And you know, I say, you know, let them, if, if they want to, again, that's why, that's why I call it white supremacy mythology. Cause it really is just that it's a mythology. But if you want to, you know, you want to promote those, that, those myths, if that, you know, if they, if their ego is that fragile and that weak, that they need to do that, I say, let them do it. Um, Cause we don't, we don't have a lot of time and energy and resources. We, our time and energy and resources are limited. So a lot of times, and I think this is like something I always think about Toni Morrison making this comment about racism. Cause what, what racism is meant to do is like distract us from our work. And I know there've been a lot of times in my past that I've, I've fell for the banana in the tailpipe, so to speak, because you know, these, this promotion of racism, and then you feel the need to, well, I, I have felt the need to like, you know, fight against the, the racist remarks or the racist claims and, and while I'm doing that, it's like I'm not building anything. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so that's that's the point where I'm where I'm at now. Um, but we definitely do need to recognize need to recognize like what's true and what's not, and um, especially in in any in any um, area of education and within any discipline, especially mathematics, um, and you know let our children know what the reality is, and then even let them know like okay, well you, if you go into this space, they're gonna they're going to call it this and they're going to say it's this, but you know, just make sure you know better. I always don't, you know, maybe, and I guess depending on the circumstance and the, and the context of the situation, maybe, maybe you might want to tell, you know, your child to like argue with the teacher or maybe you say, no, nah, don't, don't, don't waste your time arguing with the teacher. You're just there to get the grade and, and, and practice. And that's another thing that I think, um, or that I am, not that I think that I'm trying to push as an initiative is this paradigm shift in terms of how we engage and interact with public education, public, whether it's public school education, charter school education, even parochial school education. And I, th I think that what has to happen is 
instead of the schools themselves being responsible for that primary education in mathematics, the community has to become that primary educator in mathematics. And then the school, if, if, if we, until we create this a vast network of independent schools that we control on our own and fully finance and fully govern on our own, then when our children are going into these schools, if they've already been taught by us at home or in the community center or in the, somewhere on the block, or I mean, if it's summertime and we, we could set up on, on the street corner, you know, and have, have our lessons and whatnot. Because um, a lot of things are learned on the street corner, you know, maybe just not traditionally, you know, mathematics is not, or, you know, um, different disciplines that are taught in schools are not learned on street corners, but we can learn on street corners. Um, once we do that, then we you go into the school. Now the school becomes a space of practice and a space of practice only. That's what, that's what the school becomes. Whereas now the school is a place for primary education and the home or the neighborhood is a place for practice. Okay. So we have to kind of do, we have to do a 180. We have to do a 180. We have to like um, shift the paradigm because then that makes, that makes our children less vulnerable and less susceptible to a lot of the, a lot of the nonsense. Um, and a lot of a lot of the racism that's inherent in, within the culture of a lot of these schools, because like education itself is a very vulnerable activity. So if I'm trying to teach you, if I'm if I want to be taught, and I know that we, in terms of our relationship, you don't even recognize my humanity and acknowledge my humanity, it's going to be very difficult for me to allow myself to be vulnerable enough to be taught anything by you, and I probably will shut down. And that happens a lot. And that, okay. And, yeah, and there, and there are a lot of other challenges within, you know, public schools, charter schools, even, you know, parochial schools that some of our children go to, which are impediments and hindrances to their learning. But once I already know the skill, let's say I, let's say I already know how to solve systems of equations. I generally have, I have a general understanding of how to solve them through the graphing method. I have a general understanding of how to solve them through the substitution method. And it's okay, if, you know, you're not familiar with these, but these are just, you know, some of the standards standard fundamentals within algebra, right? And, it's, and, it's, and if I already have a fundamental understanding of how to solve them through the, um, through the elimination method, and then I go into the classroom, and I'm like, okay, I just need to practice. I need to do like 50 of these with each method. So I need to do 150 examples of these problems. And now I might, I might call on you just to, you know, get some clarity on a specific detail or, you know, help me with, you know, okay, well, what do I do when a problem looks like this? Because this looks similar to the last problem I did, but it's a little bit different. So then it's like I'm not as vulnerable. I don't need to be as vulnerable to you. I don't need to because my community already has my back and my community already taught me this, you know. And I, and I, I kind of got this. One of the things that influenced this idea, and this is why I try to expose myself to a lot of different types of media about a lot of different things. I was, and I, I talked about this. I was watching um, on Netflix the – Stefan Stephon Marbury documentary when that when that was on Netflix and one of the one of the many, many things I took away from that was how it was his parents um, his father and his older brothers who were all skilled basketball players that taught him basketball on the courts in in Coney Island projects in Brooklyn it was them they taught him that it was his mother and his older sisters that also nurtured him as well so it was a family affair. Everybody provided that support, and he learned basketball there. And what made me think about that was how, you know, how in all these, you know, Netflix movies or Hollywood movies, it's always like this white savior, right? So especially in a sports-oriented movie, it's always going to be like some white coach finds the kid from the ghetto, you know, doesn't have a chance, you know, he, 
he's probably going to get shot, you know, if he didn't, you know, get an opportunity to play basketball and basketball saved his life, right? They always have, they always have these stories and these narratives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so his coach from um, high school, Lincoln High School, he went to, I believe, you know, stereotypical white white male coach or whatever. And, but again, I saw how they were trying to frame it. Like, you know, they're trying to frame it like, okay, he got his opportunity at Lincoln High School. It was the white coach. But I'm looking at it like, no, I'm paying attention to what's happened to his story and what really happened. His father and his brothers taught him basketball. His community taught him basketball. He went to Lincoln to hone his craft and develop his skills and to practice what he had already been taught within his household and by his community. And what I was in when I so then I'm saying like, okay, well, we as a community, we should do the same exact thing, apply that same discipline and apply that same energy to the academic, all the academic disciplines, and really anything and everything that we do, um, if we're still going to use those spaces at all, or until we get to the point where we don't need to use their spaces. Um, but we should, we should teach, teach at home, just like kind of like what I, what I, when children are young, we teach them things at home, but it kind of get, we get to a certain level, you know, um, with math, whether it might be algebra, it's like, well, I can't really help you with that no more. You know, <laughs> like okay. I can help you with, you know, memorizing your multiplication facts, I might help you a little bit with fractions, but a lot of, as adults, there are a lot of things we never learned as children. So we have those deficiencies. So then we kind of have to put it on to the school system and the school system wants that power. They want that power to be able to um, be fully responsible for our children. Cause then you can kind of, you can dictate how they'll behave as adults later on. And a lot of times, you know, we're just trying to, or the, the school system is just trying to, you know, promote and maintain the current values and institutions of the society. That's something that Francis Fanon said. That's the only purpose of education. And that in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. But then when you look at the type of society we live in, where, you know, it's based on exploitation, based on monopoly capitalism, based on like the devaluing of of human life in favor of financial profit, then the school is going to help to maintain that. So that's why we have to, you know, we have to think about, you know, some other ways to uh, to provide the, the education that our children need or else, or else that's what they're going to get, you know, in those, in those, in those schools, you know, and it's no accident. It's no accident. The school system isn't broken. It works very efficiently. In fact, I think <laughs> what we should be doing is trying to break it. And I think removing some of the power by us taking the final, the full responsibility for the primary education, um, at all the different levels, you know, from whether it be, you know, a, a kindergarten age child to a high school age child, I think that re- removes a lot of the power from the school and that, that helps to break it. Because right now it's very efficient and it's been very efficient for many, many years. You know, even when we think about dropout rate, you know, if you do, do research on like Philadelphia, you know, as an example, people talk about, people talk about the dropout rate now, but the dropout rate was high in 1950. So any, any institution, any organization that had, you know, has had high dropout rates for the last 70 years, basically. And it's be, it's difficult for you to try to convince me that that's a problem for you. If the institution is still in existence in the, basically the same manner. <laughs> Richard. Richard. Yeah, yeah, you know, as uh, um, as I'm listening and, and Brother Keeler, what I wanted to what I wanted to do in, in, in the exchange is taking, uh, you know, really synthesize the position that you're, you're taking as a, as a math teacher um, and, and a teacher 
that um, teaches math, you know, to, to our students and understanding the political perspective that you, you know, rightfully present, um, you know, as far as how we should, we, um, whether you call ourselves in the black community or African community in America, how we should look at the educational infrastructure and the outcome as it relates to um, our children. Um, the question, the question, the first question, you know, and therefore I'm, I'm, I'm accepting the pan-Africanist nationalist perspective and, you know, and I'm trying to develop from that in the questions that I have and the thoughts that you provoke. So the, the first question I had, you know, um, as a, as a teacher, um, from the community's perspective, what is the expectation we should have from teachers in general and math teachers specifically? So, so that's a that's an excellent question. But I think before we can even have expectations of the of the teachers um, and math teachers specifically, we have to. Have, it's, it's similar to politics, right? Mm -hmm. What one what of the issues that we have, well, similar to electoral politics, I mean, one of the issues we have is that there aren't enough of us, some, some of us have it, there aren't enough of us that have specific goals and objectives for the political arena. So with the education arena, we have to have specific goals and objectives for our children, and not only just for our children, but really for our larger, our larger community. Mm -hmm. Once we have the idea about what we want our larger community to look like, then we can kind of reverse engineer things and back map and say, okay, it's kind of like, like again, you know, keeping with the ancestors, Dr. Clark, one of the things he said in his teachings was, he said, look at Japan, study Japan. Look at what they did after World War II, after they got beat down along with, you know, Germany and Italy, and they had to regroup and rebuild and close ranks and come together. And they said, okay, we need this thousand many oceanographers. We need this many computer scientists. We need this many people to work in agriculture. We need this many teachers. This is what we need because we have a vision for how we need to rebuild ourselves. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and, I accept, and I accept that. And that's, um, you know, and that's why I wanted to, you know, from the context of the Pan-African Nationalists. So your, your, your point about, um, you know, the reverse engineering and the first, and I take it as the first things first, as far as what do, what, and I notice uh, in hearing you in other venues, you you have you you enunciate that we should know um, what is it that we're trying what's the what's the end game right so if yeah. the end game is liberation right and in that liberation the context of that liberation is you know power um, you know um, self power and one of the um, social systems that we would need. And I'm not, you know, and, and I understand your point as far as the, the the number, like how many, but to be clear of the importance, uh, and that's what I'm asking, I guess, is there is does the teachers, um, those who who consciously put them, and I'm and I'm going somewhere in this in this in series of thought questions, those who who consciously put themselves in that profession. Um, should the community, from that perspective of being Pan-African, looking at liberation, recognizing liberation is about power, and power is about being able to have uh, self-control, should we have a expectation of those who take on that path because there's some things that they should 
uh, we should expect that they know whether they're in the institution or as yourself who's in the institution but also works outside the institution, if I'm making myself clear. Should we have an expectation of, the, of them and, and what that expectation should be? That's a challenging question for me. And the reason that it's challenging, and it's an excellent question, and it's something we need to deal with. I'm glad you posed that question. It's a challenging question for me because I almost think about, about it in the same context that I think about what our expectations of Europeans should be, right? Um, personally, I have very low expectations of Europeans. I don't, I don't expect, I don't, I don't, and that's why I, I have challenges with, with Black Lives Matter as a concept where essentially what you're doing is you're expecting white people to be human and treat, treat you like a human, treat us like a human, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of wake up one day based on um, our agitation or our expression of our humanity or our protesting and whatnot and say, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to treat you like a human now. But even with that, we're putting too much emphasis and stock in their treatment. So we're still centering them, right? Hmm. Um, so I think of like, you know, black of, of teachers, uh, and you're not specifying it to black teachers. Are you specifying? And, and I am. And, and to be clear, okay. you know, because in your response, I, I think I had to, I, which I didn't, and I apologize, but I am specifically thinking about black teachers. Black teachers, specifically. Okay. So, yeah, so with, with black teachers, Again, this this is a, this is a good conversation, a good a good question because we gotta we gotta be honest and have this uncomfortable conversation about some of the the in, the internal um, fissures, so to speak, within our own black collective out there. Mm -hmm. Wow! Because different people have different goals, different people have different backgrounds. There are a lot of class antagonisms because I'll often be very critical of the racist European that's in the classroom. But we also have to have space to be critical of the uh, the teacher of African descent that hates black children, mm. and you know, the, or the teacher that you know went to you know this type of school or went to this type of college or is in this type of organization and kind of has a certain certain worldview, um, which is very assimilationist, and they kind of have this animosity toward many of the black their black students because they say, look, you all are making me look bad. You all look like me, but I want to be accepted by these white people. And as long as these white people can associate you with me, you're making me look bad. So there's a lot of that we have to deal with also. So when we think about it in, that, in terms of that context, and we understand like the socialization process that produces the black teacher that's like that, um, and that nurtures and maintains the mentality of the black teacher that, that's like that, because you know, and I and I and I love HBCUs. I have degrees from two two HBCUs, but a lot of that comes from an HBCU experience. And excuse me, but that's the the reason why I'm asking that, um, because it goes to the heart of what 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 I seen you I seen over in in my short you know time at you and. And, and brother um, Klein in, in Chicago uh, and others in, in the South who, who are, um, they didn't actually come to what this expectation, what I'm characterizing y'all. And then I wanted to tie to your, um, one element that I guess in my, my, I wanted to get your clarity and want you to develop, say with um, what you formulated as history, um, what, you, what you call it, systematics, right? As a math teacher, 
you're you're also saying that in going in front of our scholars, black students, um, that one of the besides the craft of knowing mathematics, that 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 instructor should or teacher should be um, steeped enough in in our our own historical experience to be able to communicate that um, along with the the system, the techniques of being able to perform um, formulas in math. So could you develop what what you what you characterize as um, histematics? And would you agree that at least as a criteria expectation that those um, black teachers, I mean, specifically, that we as a community should have that expectation from them? I think we I think we should have that expectation from we should have that expectation from them. I'm just not as I'm just not as confident that they will that many of them will make those changes in in, in themselves and in their own practice, so to speak. Um but that but again that's not that's not me being pessimistic. That just it actually is motivating because if we realize if we take an account and a serious inventory of 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 just the black teachers. And we say, okay, how many black teachers, regardless of subjects, we can go, we can transcend mathematics, right? We say, how many are equipped and even care enough currently, right now, at this moment, while we're having this conversation on May 30th, 2021, to utilize their skill set and their ability to lead us towards some type of um, independent nationhood and and that type and that type of liberation because again we get into the definition of terminology because for some people their liberation is assimilationism their liberation mm. is okay I just want to you know live quote unquote comfortably which is very subjective I and mean, the comfort is very subjective um, so some people just want to want to assimilate want to have you know paycheck every two weeks drive a nice car you know have you know vacations and you know things of that nature um, other people are like. Nah, like they, we need nationalism. We need to control every institution that we engage in, that we engage with. We need to control it. If we don't control it, like we believe Jamel Alameen, H. Rap Brown, if we don't control the institution, it's going to be used as a weapon against us. Like we, we accept that and we believe that it's going to be used as a weapon against us, it's going to harm us. So we need to train up uh, a generation, um, essentially a, an army of these type of scholars to be these types of teachers to um, you know, to do this type of work, and I think that also should be the central central focus of any initiative to increase the number of Black teachers um, that are that are present, and also any initiative to increase the number of Black teachers should also coincide and be directly connected to an initiative to build independent institutions for them to teach in. And I don't know and, if I see that latter part. And and I would I would. And I, and I do want you to to expand on um, you know what you uh, formulated as systematics, but I want mm -hmm. systematics. But what I the reason why I'm I'm hopefully trying to pose it in this manner. I think I, be, I was at uh, on the board of a charter African Center Charter School for five to seven years, right? As a as a um, treasurer, and we we had to interview teachers, and um, and we tried to get black teachers and one of the challenges that you brought up in your exchange with Elliot 
was a lot of them could not um, pass the certification. So that was, and, and math was one of the major reasons why they couldn't pass the certification, um, the state certification. And let me back up and say, we know that education and the employment or the labor development of education controlled by the state is political, right? So right. We, we accept that, right? And so when I'm um, I, in, in being in the board, we had to, you know, board members were interviewing. So coming from this, you know, um, you know, coming from this here, um, um, African-centered um, nation building um, perspective, asking the question to these teachers or even reviewing in their resume and then their responses, a lot of them didn't have a Afri African-centered, not even African-centered, they didn't know enough black history to be able to incorporate it in their craft. Right, right. Right, so that right there was a challenge because right. one of the things we would wanna have, right, is at least them, because of what you said, to be at least um, have some knowledge base to be able to infuse it. But if you don't, then knowing what you're, you're saying, they are only coming to destroy the scholars that are presenting because they're going to be reinforcing um, the white ideals, white, you know, and taking aside their attitude, their, their personal, you know, whether they want a car, they want a big house or whatever, I, we, we, you know, we got to pay whatever they want to pay. They, they came to the, to the table um, thinking, you know, like I, I've got my certification or I'm working on my certification and I did my part. Um, you should hire me. Right. right. And that's why I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I think that we should at least from the, this perspective, be engaged in the conversation from the community perspective, because I agree with you that the African community should be the center of educating our young scholars, but we should also be, because it, education is political and the labor development of education of who is, who is going is political, that we should have an expectation of, reg regardless of how large that pool is, of what we want out of that pool. And that goes to your last point, um, I mean, the last observation about what HBCUs, because you're at Cheney University and mm -hmm. you're assisting them. So that's a HBCU, right? right? And, and it is a teacher college, a historical teacher college. Right. And uh, we, we went through um, a lot of those teachers. So, you know, I, I, I had to give that context so that you, the listening audience, understand why I'm raising this question. And I agree with you. It's an uncomfortable conversation. We see when we talk about politicians and ministers and people like that, but we don't see it about these people who, who are shaping the values and the mindset of the most vulnerable of our most natural resource, which is our, our, our youth themselves. But, so, but with that aside, what is histamonics that you, 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 you utilize and how do you utilize it? And and, and oh, keep and keep in mind too, brother Keel. Before you when you answer that, I want to come back to something that you said to Richard about five minutes ago. Uh, I'm, I'll tell you what it is once you get done with uh, your explanation. 
Okay. So histomatics is really it's a combination of kind of kind of what just what it sounds like uh, the combination of history and mathematics. But the way it's done, it's a it's a framework that I kind of just uh, formalized and just you know put it on paper one day. Because what I realized is that you know throughout my teaching career, I kind of organically been you know been been doing it you know, and then I I, I just put it put it to paper so I could present it and talk about it more at this conference, the Teaching Black History Conference, back in t- summer of 2019, um, you know, sponsored, put together by the Carter Center at the University of Missouri, and the, the good brother, um, Dr. LeGarrett King, um, who's the director of that that, uh, that center down there. And, you know, I came up with five elements, and it really, you know, it was a response to, you know, my, my students constantly telling me, you know, over the years, like, Mr. Park, you should be an African-American history teacher. You know, so I was like, so when when they was when they would say that to me, and we're in a geometry class, or we're in a statistics class, or we're in a pre-cal class, and they say that to me, I feel like I was doing something right, because what I realized is that, like, I became a teacher to try to try to um, fill a void and try to eliminate some deficiencies that I know we have in our community, right? So, but you know, mathematics, mathematical competency is not the only deficiency that we generally possess. We possess other deficiencies in terms of just historical awareness, you know, especially of our own our own history um, of of, of Af- whether it be African history or African American history, and you know you can start with just individuals, um, the, an awareness of individuals and an awareness of commu- um, communities and groups and um, political movements that people of African descent have been a part of that our children have no idea about, and oftentimes I think our own frustrate as adults and elders, our own frustration with our inability to create the infrastructure and the institutions to provide that knowledge in a seamless and organic and organic in a normal way, we end up taking it out on them. It's kind of like, you know, as, as a teacher, we do that sometimes. I know plenty of times in my career, I've, I've become frustrated with students for not understanding. I've done the same thing with my own children. And, you know, I apologize to them all the time um, for that, because I realize that I'm raising my voice and becoming hostile with you because what you're doing by your by your lack of understanding, what you're exposing is my weakness. Because I wasn't able to get you to understand this in the way that I explained it. And then I wasn't able to be, and then I got frustrated because there might be some other things going on in my life, right? So once you realize that, it's like, okay, it's just a reminder that we have to work harder, right? So what histomatics does is it, it's like, okay, well, I know, I know you need to know about, about these historical figures, these historical movements. And these are the things that once you get exposed to them, then you'll be you'll you'll realize that okay yeah we can win. A lot of us we just we end up participating in things that are counter-revolutionary and just counterproductive. Just generally speaking, even if we don't get into revolution, you know, just, let's talk about productivity versus you know counterproductivity. We become very fixated and focused on things that are counterproductive because we don't think we're going to win anyway. And the reason we don't think we're going to win is because we haven't heard stories about those wins. And we don't really understand the full context of our history and our historical experience. So, you know, you start learning about people that, you know, I mean, you know, Mumia Abu-Jamal, you know, he was 15 or 16 years old. Him and his friends helped start a branch of the Black Panther Party right in North Philly. You know, so if you're 15 or 16 years old, but you're listening to the rappers, you know, the commercial rappers are telling you to do is just go out and sell coke, go out and sell pills, go out and sell drugs, Right. You believe you will believe that that's all you are destined, predestined to do. To do, yeah. and that's all you're capable of doing, because that's the that's the information that you're being fed constantly, and that becomes your cultural diet. 
But then here it is, oh, but no, you know, black teenage boys have been doing real work, you know, political organizing. <laughs> like they were members of the Black Panther Party and they were involved with the pre-breakfast program and all these types of things. So we're having those conversations. And then the thing is, what I realized is like, it's kind of like, um, kind of like when, when you're gambling, you know, people talk about, you know, like leave, don't leave money on the table. Right. So it's like with education, it's like, I, I realized I was leaving a lot of money on the table because there are a lot of opportunities where, okay, we're doing this math lesson. And I could have just easily like took the word problem from the textbook and just replaced it with information about our historical experience. So I was leaving so much money on the table by not creating my own content and having conversations that will require us to do quantitative analysis and apply quantitative reasoning. But we can also simultaneously in a seamless way and in an efficient and effective way, we can talk about our history. We can talk about political science. We can talk about cultural cultural awareness, cultural reality. We can we can talk about Pan-Africanism because we can have conversations about we can use within math problems. We can talk about Thomas Sankara. We can talk about Maurice Bishop. We can talk about Walter Rodney. Talk about Samora Michelle. All these people and the things that they were doing. Uh, I mean, we can literally go into their books, and I guess this would be an aspect of systematics on the. The, uh, the educator side in terms of like professional development as an educator in terms of curriculum development, we can go to any, um, any book, like we can go to uh, speaking of Walter Roddy, we can go to how Europe underdeveloped Africa and just read it from page one and just look for numerical content, look for um, quantitative information and just create word problems. And we can just go through straight like that. And then what happens is now, Okay, so cause this is the, this is what happens anyway. You go to any textbook, all the word problems are connected directly to some type of cultural element of somebody's culture. But it's back to that original question, the original point I made that all education is culturally relevant already. Cultural cultural relevancy is not a new thing. The issue is now we're asking the question. It's more popular and mainstream to ask the question: Whose culture is it relevant to? So now it becomes very culturally relevant for Black children. When we go to a book like How Europe Under the Underdeveloped Africa and we're teaching word problems or we're teaching um, uh, um, proportional relationship word problems from using the work of Walter Rodney or going to Asada Shakur's autobiography, reading Asada, and now we're pulling out word problems, you know. So now we're talking about Asada. We're talking about her experience with the Black Panther Party for self-defense. We're talking about her experience with the, um, with the Black Liberation Army. And we're also um, teaching mathematics and mathematical competency. So that's, that's like a general um, description of what histematics is. Um, and like I said, it's broken down into five different, five different elements, I call them, which are how I just kind of organize the different types of work that's done within them. And, you know, one of the, one of the, main, one of the, one of the elements that um, I think about probably the most is, well, I don't want to say the most, but, one of the things that readily comes to mind is the fifth element, which is mathematical exemplars. And within mathematical exemplars, I address two main two main groups. So, you know, they're basically black basically black folks that did excel themselves in mathematics that you would never think of. Like I did a presentation recently at ASCAT where I was talking about um, ASCAT um, conference. Um, I was talking about Du Bois, the mathematician, because in in, in my studies. I've never seen Du Bois described as a mathematician. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to, again, I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to create paradigm shifts, right? I'm pushing back. I think Du Bois should be classified as a mathematician because all the work that he has done that he is recognized for 
much of it was grounded, if not all of it, is grounded in mathematical analysis because his work in sociology, he was using mathematics. If you go to the Philadelphia Negro and just flip through it, he's got charts, graphs, all types of data. The same data could be used in any statistics textbook that you pull off a shelf, whether you order it off Amazon, wherever. He's doing um, averages. He's doing um, percentage increases, percentage decreases. He's doing all these different types of things. So I say I argue that Du Bois is a mathematician. Not only that, when you study his biographical information, um, his biography, I believe, Volume 1 from David Levering Lewis, Lewis talks about how after he had already accepted his position at Wilberforce University and was about to go teach there, um, Booker T. Washington offered him an opportunity to come teach at Tuskegee. And what, was, what did he offer him to teach? Mathematics. He wanted him to come to Tuskegee and be a math professor. So he had the competency, he had the ability, but we never think of Du Bois as a mathematician. So I think, like, we have to start, like, framing these people in, in a different way and show what some of the other things they did was. Like, even I think of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. is another person that comes to mind because we know of him as, you know, the, the firebrand, you know, the, the brother that was, you know, in Harlem for the people, you know, really a model of what a black politician really should be. You know, like, so, we, you know, when we, when we look at these other politicians, when we look at Barack Obama and then you look at Adam Clayton Powell Jr., it's like there's no comparison. Like, we, you know, but at the same time, and that's, and that's cool because we should do that, that analysis because I think that's political science, right? <laughs> Looking at examples of politicians that worked for our community and were serious and committed to our community, even with their flaws, right? But he has a mathematics degree from Colgate University. Right. So it's like when I read that, when I was doing biographical research on him, reading one of his biographies, I'm like, wow, I never knew that. I would have never thought that. So it's like, you know, you know, a lot of times like we're, we're, we're math teachers and we're in these math classrooms and we're like kind of stuck in these textbooks and kind of tethered to these textbooks. And we're just worried about the X's and the Y's and the numbers. And we got it. We got it. I guess I guess what I realized, is we got to just be more real about the mathematics and make it more real. And one of the ways to do that is through people, you know, through the, through the people, through the individuals. I mean, Anna, Anna Julia Cooper, also master's degree, mathematics. Um, one of influenced Du Bois to write uh, Black Reconstruction. You know, basically told, basically put the battery, battery in his back and says, listen, you got to write this book because, you know, this white guy is up here, uh, William Dunning, well, I think that was his name. He writes a book basically trying to trying to um, hold black people in America responsible for why Reconstruction didn't work. In typical fashion, they do the same thing today. Anything that goes wrong, you know, that they mess up or they, you know, um, you know, causes, you know, it's problematic. They, you know, want to, want to scapegoat us. That's typically our position in their, in their imagination, in the white imagination. So he was, she was one of her, one of his influences. She also, um, for that, uh, the M Street School, in D.C. I'm not sure if she was there at the same time that Carter G. Wilson was there. Maybe she was there afterwards. But she also helped to found a independent college um, in D.C. for working class people of African descent, Freeling Heisen University. So and that's, you know, that's powerful. So when you, when you my, my point is that with the mathematical exemplars, it's like you study these people um, and many of us that are, that are well versed in history already. So not like, you know, a lot of the teachers that are, you know, coming out of coming out of these programs that aren't well-versed. And I mean, I mean, a lot of people, we just, we're not well-versed in history, you know, for ver for many reasons, for many reasons. Um, some, some our own fault, but then some not so much our fault. Um, but we don't make the connection to mathematics with these people. So it's like, oh, they were, 
they were this historian or they were this teacher or whatever. We don't make the connection to mathematics because because mathematics is is like it's it's marginalized and it's kept to the side, and I think that's that's done by by design because without a solid grasp of mathematics, I, I believe I truly believe this is my theory and belief that we you can't nation build unless a certain at least a critical mass of your people has a strong understanding of of not just well I'll say mathematics but we could also look at it as quantitative reasoning and quantitative analysis. Because you can't build anything without understanding math. And I, when I say build, I don't even mean it in the, like, kind of like the anecdotal definition of building. But I mean, like, look, okay, we need to build a house. We need to build a building. We need to build a factory from the ground up. We need to build machines to go in the factory to produce the items that we need, that our people need, so that they can survive and, and they can thrive and we can be happy and be healthy and provide for our children, provide for our grandchildren and nieces and nephews and so on and so forth, Right. Um, so I think that's why also mathematics as a subject is marginalized and people are made to be so comfortable with even saying, you know, I'm not good at math and just leaving it at that. Right. Um, there's a certain marketing that goes along with that. And there's a certain like acceptance, a general acceptance of that as a concept. And that's what we have to fight back against. Because again, my, my firm belief is that we cannot nation build without mathematics. Not, not that mathematics is the only thing that we need to nation build. We need a lot of things to be able to nation build, but mathematics is definitely something that we need um, in order to nation build. And and one of the other things I talked about it at ASCAC was um, one of my, it was another ASCAC conference, not the re most recent one, but I believe the one in the fall, was that part of my work is to bring mathematics, to, um, the, the study and analysis of mathematics and mathematics education up to par with our study of history and psychology that a lot of our African-centered scholars have, have put forth because, you know, I've learned a great deal from our scholars, our African-centered scholars, um, in terms of our history, in terms of psychology, in terms of um, just political science. So I feel that it's necessary for me and, and some others to bring mathematics up, up to that level because the, the, the mathematics work hasn't been done. If we can find the books on, on our history, but we haven't. We there aren't nearly as many books on, like you know, um, the mathematics and the usage of mathematics and how it how it interconnects with, you know, the other work that has already been done. And that's that's one of the things that that's that's another part of all this math. You know, what all this math is is really about on a on a, on a deeper level. Um, but let me get back to like element five. So the fifth element part of it is like the the mathematical exemplars that we don't normally associate with math. But then the other part is. Just black mathematicians that we just don't know of. That we just don't know of. And, and a lot of people were, you know, were, were formally trained as mathematicians. We're black. We're of African descent. You know, lived in the United States or lived in the Caribbean or from from different places throughout the diaspora. And, you know, they, 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 they mastered calculus and the different levels of calculus. And they, you know, have PhDs and wrote dissertations on different mathematical concepts and, you know, and whatnot. And they taught on a college level. And many of them at HBCUs. Um, for many years, because that's where the opportunity was, and that's and that's where we needed. That's where we needed it at, um, and where where they were needed at. And even and even me, like I, I was on in a meeting with um, some students from the Morgan State University Math Club and the Howard University Math Club, and they were talking about a brother named uh, Dr. David Blackwell, and his name was familiar to me, but I didn't really know much about him. So I realized that that was a deficiency and, you know, in a blind spot in my own um, level of awareness. 
So I'm like, you know, I'm sitting there. Then I had to self-reflect. I said, well, how you know? How, come on, I can't. How are you talking about histamatics? You don't even know. You can't even stand up and speak intelligently about this brother, Dr. David Blackwell, for 10 minutes. You should be able to talk intelligently about this man. He was a, a mathematician, Ph.D., taught here, taught there, did this type of research in statistics, did this, that, and the third. You need to know about him. And then, you know, so I, that, that prompted me to do this, like, um, more research on other individuals. And because I'm saying, like, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to do this work and I don't even know who this, these people are. I need to know who these people are. So, again, when you when we start, like, looking at our community structure and the condition of our community, it's like, you know, we have to be more we have to be more self-reflective. And I have to be more self-reflective. I'm like, well, I'm gonna get mad at the young brother on the corner because he don't know. And I don't even know. Right. So once then but then once I know, then it's my job, my responsibility to figure out effective ways to share the information with the community and find other people that are, that are also willing to do that work too. Um, so again, element five, some up mathematical exemplars. Some are people that you would not traditionally or in a conventional way connect to mathematics, but we should, I think. And then the other is just people that are classified as mathematicians that need to become, you know, part of our, our general everyday conversation. Cause then you get into the whole thing of, well, hmm, Okay, so <laughs> black people black people really do math. Okay, I get it. I see it now. So black people don't just play basketball and, and, and sell drugs and rap and sing and dance. And, you know, like we, we do more than that. Really? So it's like whatever, whatever examples uh, young people see, then they're going to believe that. Okay, this is what we really do. You know, so that's part of uh, that's that's part of that's all that's all part of that work. Let me, before we t- uh, take a break, let me uh, grab a couple of these calls, see if they got a question or comment. Let's go to Montgomery, Alabama, 334. 334? Montgomery? Hey, hey uh, thank you, Brother Elliot. Thank you, Brother Richard. And, and it's a pleasure to hear you again, Brother Akeel. Akeel. Um, uh, the, the question that I have is with regards to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, mathematical exemplars um, who may have also crossed the line into the area of um, sociology. You meant, you, you uh, mentioned uh, the boys, uh, all hail and, and, and honor and respect to Kelly Miller, uh, which was a mathematician who populated John Hopkins University. And so are there other individuals that you may know of? So yeah, so let me and and again, again like I, like I mentioned, you know I have to I have to expose you know my own weaknesses. Um, uh-huh. But I'm on. Hold on a second, you know technology is gonna is gonna help me because I'm on. Uh, wait, where we at? Where we at? I have a, uh, a Google Doc where I was again I went down this rabbit hole and I was looking into all these different um, sisters and brothers that were. You know, mathematical exemplars. Kelly Miller's on the list. Yeah, Kelly Miller's definitely on the list. You know, um, you know, taught at Howard and then was an administrator at Howard. Um, had some disagreements with uh, with Marcus Garvey, um, but that's you know that's that's okay. I think we need to we need to study that more and um, and understand why why the, why the different people had had disagreements in the past. And you know, cause disagreements aren't necessarily a bad thing. Where is this document at? I'm looking on my. Uh, Yeah, let me try to think. Let me try to think of some people off the top of my head. There's a there's an Albert uh, Baruka, Albert Baruka. There is 
there's a let me let me say this. There's a, a, again, like I said, and I'm glad you asked this question because since you asked the question, and I can't produce for you like these names readily, right? That just means right. I need I need to study them more myself. Um, Evelyn Granville, Evelyn Granville Boyd, Evelyn Granville Boyd, she's mm-hmm. an, another exemplar. Uh, David Blackwell, I already mentioned, of course. Right. There's, of course, the sisters from that were highlighted in the movie Hidden Figures. Um, um, Catherine, Catherine Johnson, uh, Mary, is it Mary Vaughn, or is it no? Is it Dorothy Vaughn? I think it's Dorothy Vaughn. And the other sister's name was Ma- first name was Mary. I can't recall her last name. Okay. Um, but there's a you know there's 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 a lot. There's a lot, and we need to. We need these these people are in obscurity. They're in, in relative obscurity. We need to kind of rescue them, rescue them from obscurity, and make them household names, especially with our children and our young people. And not even just during Black History Month, but well, you know, because Black we understand Woodson's approach. Woodson's approach was not for our um, accomplishments and achievements to only be highlighted during February, or even right. in Negro History Week when he when he started it, what he started it as. But it was kind of like a halftime for us to reflect on the work that we're doing perennially and throughout the full year, right? So, you know, Negro History Week, which expands to Black History Month, is really just a time for reflection on what we have done in the past year and what we are about to do in this upcoming year. Um, so, and it's, there's so much for us to for, for us to do. But, but yeah, I'm sorry that I, I'm, I'm sorry. That, that's all right. That's all right. But you know, the and the other small little quick question is that. We shouldn't be ashamed, do you think? We really shouldn't be ashamed of our failures just because we, say, can't be able to um, uh, dissect a circle into radius and, and uh, diameter, et cetera. So we should be able to take on our failures and make those failures part of us in order for us to learn more and, and become better. You think? Definitely. Definitely. Use the, use the failure as leverage. The failure is leverage um, and to our advancement, you know, recognizing, okay, um, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't excel at this. Yeah. Mary Jackson. That was the name, right? Dorothy Vaughn, Captain Johnson, Mary Jackson. My wife just texted me. She's listening <laughs> to this. She gave, me, she gave me an assist. She came through in the clutch. Brother, Thank you. Uh, Thanks for your contribution, brother. Yes, sir. Talk to you soon. All right. Let's go to 267. Question or comment for our guest. 267? Yes. Kill. it's been a pleasure, sir, listening to you. And I thought about you because um, I went to Lincoln University. I went to school with a lot of people who graduated from Poly in Baltimore. Polytech. Okay. Uh, yeah. And Poly, you know, oh, yeah. Polytech is like the central in Philadelphia. And, you know, um, every public school uh, in Philadelphia is not like a Central or Girls High. It's like every public school probably in Baltimore is a lot like Polytech. So I understand what you're saying. And those brothers that came out of Polytech, they graduated from Lincoln, they do well. Matter of fact, I, I don't know if you know a guy by the name of Earl Scott. He's a millionaire from Polytech who graduated from me. He's doing well. And they're in their community still now, or they live close to their community still now. A frat brother, Keith Gardner, he's excellent. All these people, real good. But you want all schools probably to be like a Polytech or a Central Girls High in Philadelphia. But I'm going to say this part to you. You said something that was really good because about Du Bois, that when he went to Clark, they don't talk about Du Bois like they should. When he went to Clark Atlanta, see, when they talk about Clark Atlanta, 
They don't talk about like like they do Morehouse and Spellman. They always talk about Morehouse and Spellman, Morehouse and Spellman. When Du Bois went to Clark, he expanded huge the economic and sociology department. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He was so mm-hmm. quick. And the thing is, is that uh, that he he came across a lot of things because his voice went a lot of places in his brilliance. He bumped heads with people. It's just like when he went, he didn't want to uh, go to Tuskegee because um, he had problems with uh, George Washington Carver. So he has some interesting things that he came across. But I want to say this to you, that when I started teaching, I started teaching in elementary school. I had a professor that was a friend of mine. Him and his wife are both friends of mine, as a matter of fact. He taught at Cheney for 20 years, taught at Lincoln for 20 years. He ended up at Penn. Unfortunately, he died when he was teaching at Penn. His wife had a degree in linguistics. He taught at Westchester. And um, he was happy. Both of them were happy. And he gave me, because I'm education, so I'm, I'm education, but I'm, it comes to that. I'm English, right? And I'm, I'm history. So he says, Timothy, put that stuff down to study his math. He was a chemistry teacher who knew math mm-hmm. up and down. And what he did was he gave me the Pythagorean theorem and puzzles. And I gave it to uh, the students that I had in elementary school at Smith, as a matter of fact, in 90, I think it was 93. And they loved it. They looked at it as a puzzle. I wrote, the professor gave me a poem that he made up for them. And they, they were doing the Pythagorean theorem. I said, you know, go further than Pythagoras. So they know they came from Egypt. They understood that part. They understood that part in fourth or fifth grade. They understood that part. But what he gave me to give them, it became a part of a cultural piece. It was a game that was a puzzle that was from Africa. So the Pythagorean thing was, you know, was one thing. But telling the truth was another thing. Like you said, they want to teach their people a lie, let them do it. Now, I'm going to bring you to another thing before I hang up. So the guy, his name was Sabor Muhammad. And he started off going to community college math program. He did well in that. But he didn't come out to teach in the public school system. Sabor did independent education. Matter of fact, he even homeschooled his children. And he tutored people that I knew. He said to me, Tim, if they don't want homeschool, I'll do tutoring. And like you said, see, the framework of the public school system is there. And a lot of people are not going to want to come out of that. But they need education at home. And he provided that for them. Now, he wound up, after a certain amount of years, of homeschooling and tutoring, he wound up working with a politician, which he was able to expand himself on that level. But I'm telling you what you're saying is true because people didn't know that about Sabor. All that he did was education. He was against the public school system. He thought it was a pileup of another form of slavery, and it was it, it was made to take away from us and not give to us. Now, I'm going to say this to you. Some people get affected by that and never want to do anything else but that and still a brainwash in education. But Sabor's thing was is to expand it and build on what he was teaching him. He just said, sometimes you might not need them. Some people might disagree with Sabor, but sometimes I say you need both. So you got to be able to, like, if you can learn math on the street corner, shooting dice. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you can also take that, bring it in the classroom and teach it. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the best experiences I had. A friend of mine, one of my best friends, she has a degree in engineering from Boston. And um, we taught together a lot for long. We were taught in Dr. Bivens' school. Right, this, this, he had a summer school up in, in Germantown, and we used to always go there. And she didn't like engineering. And what she did was, when she came to the public school system, she started my partner. She found books in Algebra One. She 
She had books. She would go from one system to the next. She didn't even use that stuff half of the time. See, when you're in your classroom, you close the door, you do what you want. Yeah. So she did what she wanted in the classroom. Another experience, another experience I had before I hang up. I taught with this guy from Africa one time, man. I wanted to sit in the classroom myself. He didn't use calculators. He said, we didn't use calculators in Africa. The way he was teaching was totally different. So, I mean, all these systems of teaching, all that we learn, we need to put them together in order to do for our people. See, that's when nationalism comes in. That's when our own sociology comes in. That's when independent education comes in for us. The other thing is, is that it's kind of hard teaching someone who doesn't have the proper home training. Now, I had a student one time, and I had experience with this student there. He's clowning and acting a fool in high school. I said, I want you to do, because I had to do an assignment over in Masterman. I said, you know, I want you to come with me. I said, now you over here and Ben Franklin clowning with a whole bunch of clowns. Mm-hmm. I took him out of that classroom at Ben Franklin, where they were acting. All the classrooms were like that in Ben Franklin. And when he was with me with them, all stuff that he was doing with them clowns, he stopped. I said, you know what? If I could take some of y'all and bring y'all from Ben Franklin to Masterman, you want to act right. So you're around other people that clown. Right. And he, he felt like a square. And he just went along with it. See what I'm saying? I learned a lot. I said, guess what? Because you found people that could clown with. But you guess what? You want people to take you to McDonald's and hang out. Now you and people who are interested in learning. And they look at you like a square. And then you're not doing that here. So we have to build an environment where acting a fool is not cool. Going yeah, to work, do something it's better. Wait, question, yeah. quick question for you. When you were at, at Baron Franklin, were you there with uh with uh, Dana King? Dana King and I have been, let me tell you something. Now she has a charter school. Dana King and I taught together. She taught history there. I had special right. ed and I had and I had social studies. She taught history and get, let me tell you something. She did good. Listen to me. She did good. Me, her, uh, you don't know Mr. Pringle. Mr. Pringle's from from Penn, but he went to Ben Franklin, went to Penn and came back to teach there. I was there with I was there with uh Mr. Ivy. He ran that charter with her. She was on the fifth floor. I was on the second floor, special ed teaching history and stuff like that. So I was there with Danny King, and guess what? Another person that came along with Danny King and I was Dr. Greg. This is because that, Dr. Greg Carter just got his doctorate. Down. I don't know if you know Greg yeah. Carter. You know Greg Carter? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of my own. Yeah, it was Greg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was Greg Carr. So listen, uh, Greg Carr came there, and you could tell Greg Carr was trying to get out of Temple. He got his degree and he was ready to roll. It's good that he came out of there. But he did what he could with the public school system. And I, I'll tell you somebody else who helped with the curriculum with the with the book that they were doing with the uh, African American studies. And believe it, I don't know if you know Hannibal. Hannibal did a little bit of that too. He helped them with that. Greg Carr, Dana King, Hannibal. Um, it worked out, but guess what? How long did it stay? And what's going on now with it? See, this is what you're saying, independent education. Because you never know when it happens, something bad happens to them, it happens to all of us. I can tell you so many programs that the public school system, system lost that they once had. They had well, – Southern had a motivation. Well, Southern had a motivation called Southwark. Now, the general studies is at the main building, right? Well, bring it on home for me, Tim, because we're going to take a break. Uh, break, brief okay. break. I'm going to say this. That, I'm going to say this, that when things in the public school system starting to work like teen court, out with, they fail. When they see they're working for us, they destroy them. That's why sometimes on the outside, we got to do what we have to do on the outside, on the inside for our people. It's been a pleasure. Call back again. I'll talk some more. I got some more to tell you about the public school system, brother. <laughs> talk hey, to you. Right. You got a lot to tell me too. Yeah. We're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. In fact, we're going to transition over to just talking about some, uh, 
general topics that affect our communities, you can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with activist, educator, and founder of All This Math, LLC, Professor Akil Parker. We'll be right back. With host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444 that number is 215-885-2444 215-885-2444 all insurance incorporated Your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I, Black Power, A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family, to join your interconnected commit to you black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. 
am an African. The death of my brother is also my death. Let me put this question to you again, because many foolish black middle classes and many foolish people who are eating well think that they can sit in America and watch this country destroy the African continents and watch this country destroy African Caribbeans and watch this country destroy Africans in Central and South America and think that these same people who destroy Africans abroad will not be the same people who destroyed them in America. There are fools in this, this country who try to claim that they are not Africans, who claim that they do not see color, as if they're not seeing color makes any difference in the world. Simply because you don't see color doesn't mean somebody does not see you as color. And that's the issue. And you think then that you can sit in this country while this same nation and these same people that you sleep with and marry and love and so forth can go out and destroy African people and not think those people do not see you as African. Even though you choose not to see yourself as African, you'd better think again. You're out of your minds and you're headed for death. You must understand that. Hide behind it. I'm an American. Ladies and gentlemen, these death and destruction of black people will follow those kind of abstractions. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, the political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal 
differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's uh, 852. Here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in conversation with activist, educator, and founder of All This Math, LLC. Professor Akil Parker is with us in conversation. You can get involved, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're going to transition over to talk about some issues that affect our community in one way or the other. And uh, get Professor Parker to throw his, uh, his knowledge into the pot here, and we're going to stir it up and, and have some callers call in. Brother Richard. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned some things there when we were going to open forum that you wanted to throw out. I'll uh, let you have the floor first. Well, I, I was, um, you know, uh, uh, kill, you know, African Liberation um, Day just passed last week, I believe it was. Um, and, it, you know, and I know you, um, as you mentioned early in the conversation, you, 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 you speak to a lot of the African liberate, um, freedom fighters uh, of the different um, countries. And, and, uh, and I guess I wanted to just um, ask, and you may have already, you, you may have already uh, said this, but could you briefly give us um, what, what do you see uh, liberation, African liberation is, um, as it relates to, you know, based off of Nkrumah, Sika Ture, Gabral, um, you know, uh, Sankara, and does that definition, the definition you'll give in the context of those um, African leaders, does, is it relevant to us here? So I'm, I'm asking you, you know, your, your definition of liberation and in the context of, you know, those African leaders, is is that definition um, as relevant to those in of us here in North America? So I'll answer your second question first and say yes, it definitely is. Um, unlike the you know the people you know in, in ADOS that don't believe in um, or don't agree with Pan African nationalism or Pan Africanism as a concept or an objective at all. Uh, I definitely uh, believe it's it's relevant to us, um, and I do. But I also think it's a, it's a difficult. The original question is a difficult question for me to answer because I'm thinking about um, the different interpretations of Pan Africanism that were still 
very similar, but you know, some people that some people on the continent uh, possess, like some of our, our leaders, ancestors, um, how they they their kind of approach to Pan Africanism differed in certain ways. Like some people believed in a, a more um, centralized Pan Africanism, and then, like I, I believe, I'm not mistaken, I need to, I need to study their work much more thoroughly to be 100% sure, but I believe it was like Nkrumah that kind of looked at or had a, had a vision for Pan-Africanism, which was more centralized. But then you have people like uh, Nairi over in Tanzania that believed in a more like a regionalized, like, okay, Pan-Africanism may look this way in this region. Um, but one thing I do, in, in terms of going back to Nkrumah, since you mentioned him, one thing I do, I've, of many things, you know, that I appreciate about, you know, Nkrumah, I mean, even um, my, my youngest child, I named him Kwame, um, in part after Kwame Ture, but in, in part, after Kwame Osaji for Kwame Nkrumah because he in turn Kwame Ture named himself after him um, is that you know even if, if Ghana has freedom that means nothing if the other nations in on the continent don't have that same type of freedom and I think that extends itself to people of African descent throughout the whole entire globe so if we in the United States Let's, you know, if we, if, either, if we have some type of freedom, but then brothers and sisters in the diet in the, on the Caribbean, or in, in South Africa, in South America, Brazil, wherever, um, on the continent don't have freedom, then kind of our freedom is is very, uh, it's still, um, you know, it may it may be fleeting, you know, it may it may not 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 last. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I would I would say that, but in terms of like what liberation looks like, liberation. I believe, generally speaking, is us having the control over ourselves and really all aspects of, of human existence that, you know, Neely Fuller talk, speaks to, or, you know, talks about um, all the different areas. But in, in a more, like, I guess, generalized way in terms of our economics, our politics, and all of our social institutions. And I, get, I, I take this directly from Malcolm X, the ballot or the bullet, you know, when he talks about black nationalism. And then in terms of my own education, kind of starting out, or being introduced to nationalism through Malcolm X and his, you know, ballot on a bullet speech, at least in terms of my analysis of nationalism, I should say, starting out with Malcolm X, but then from Malcolm, then going to on to Kwame Torre and reading Stokely Speaks and those those lectures that he provided in there. And in one of his lectures toward the end of the text, where he talks about how the highest extension or the highest expression of black nationalism is Pan-Africanism. Because black nationalism tends to speak to our experience here in the United States, but Pan-Africanism is global. And us being a part of the global struggle and, and, and the global work is um is definitely important, you know, um, as a as a protective mechanism because we can't like whatever we build, we have to be able to protect and defend. Or else, you know, it'll just come and just got get knocked down. You know, it's kinda like what is it like uh, you know, the three little pigs. You know, like they building the houses, but you know, if the wolf comes through and can blow it down, like what was the point? You know, it was only temporary. So you got to be able to build something that's sustainable and can be maintained, and also you have to be able to defend it. You know, um, you know, maybe one of them, one of them little pigs should have went outside and shot that wolf um, when he when they saw he was trying to blow the house down. But um, but yeah, so that's 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 what I think about when I think about liberation. And, and you know, uh, hey, Elliot, I'm, I'm, I, I just wanted to ask this other uh, question. You know, um, something I, I hear you bring up, Brother Akil, all the time, and and I'm I'm, I'm conflating two things. Um, 
Um, I guess I am in the camp that say those of us here are in a neo-colonial um, um, position, right? That's why I thought the expect, you know, being clear of our from the from our in our communities, what do we expect from people who provide us service, um, or even expect from ourselves? We have to place expectations um, towards this liberation. But it's one thing that you, I, I hear you constantly bring up, I want you to continue to develop because I think it's important. Um, you, um, you usually raise this point about marketing. Um, and, and, and when, you know, I don't know if, if us, if I and those of us in the um, general listening, you know, time for waking audience uh, understand the power, but more importantly, what do you mean when you when you say that um, the whole point about things being marketed to us, but more importantly, um, how our effect of marketing um, to our community. What, what what do you what do you mean about marketing, um, and 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 why do you think that is such a powerful um, activity in our environment? Think about. When I, when I speak about marketing, I'm thinking about the power of propaganda. And I was honestly, I was influenced to think this way by the writing of, you know, some some people may be surprised by this. You know, maybe some people won't be, but um, the writing of Adolf Hitler. Because Adolf Hitler wrote an autobiography, Mein Kampf. And, and I think we should study people like him, you know, because he was, and again, that's some, I learned that from that approach kind of to analysis from you know, from like from Kwame Ture and many others, because we we can't just study the people that we like, and we can't just study the people that we think like us. We got to study our enemies, and actually, it could be argued that it's even more important and more valuable to study the people that hated us, um, and study what they were doing and what their plans were and what their activities were, so we can be able to better protect ourselves against those things happening again. So, Hitler has this chapter in Mein Kampf called "On Propaganda." And he just breaks down, like, listen, this, this is the power of propaganda. This is the value of it. This is how we define it. This is how we're going to utilize it as a strategic tool to, you know, control, to affect change and control people and dictate to people what they should want, what they should uh, need, what they, what they should think that they need, what they're going to like, what they're going to dislike. And it just really just, he laid bare in that chapter, like, just the power of propaganda. And then I just started really thinking a lot about my own experiences and just kind of questioning myself in terms of thinking like, well, why do I like what I like? Like, I claim that I like this. Why do I like it? And then I wonder like, you know, cause a lot of us, we're not necessarily born like kind of like, like we're not like, like computer hard drives, you know, pre-populated with this programming necessarily. Right. So we, you know, we, we get exposed to, you know, experiences and ideas and information. And then now it's like, okay, you know, you like this because, every day for the last year you've seen this commercial and this commercial has told you that you like it. You know, it's almost like, it's almost like when, when we watch things in, in, you know, in the, in the hip hop, the commercial hip hop community, or we listen to the radio stations and they say, somebody comes on and they're in a commercial and they say, Hey, it's your boy. So-and-so. And I'm like, wait, I don't even know you. I might not even like you. How are you my boy? Like, but you're dictating to me that I, that you're my boy and that we're cool and we're friends. Like, so it's like that. He's like these mental like games that are played in terms of the um, of of the propaganda. And what I also realized is that a lot of things that we believe and we think they're just things that are just marketed to us. And then I just uh, I thought a lot about how the things that we that we do need, especially if we're talking about nationalism, pan Africanism, 
I, th- I definitely believe we just have to do a much better job of marketing these things. Um, even myself, like a lot of times, you know, in my past, I've thought about, you know, a lot of different things that, uh, you know, that you know, programs and projects or things I've been working on. And I kind of, I did, I realized that I didn't have the confidence in their, in their credibility to even want to really market or that's part of it. But I think sometimes it's like you get so caught up in just doing the work and doing the activity that, you know, the marketing part gets left out. Right. Cause you know, it's like, like I might be coming onto a, on to a radio show or a podcast, or I might've been presenting at a conference, but I spent all my time developing the PowerPoint or doing the research or doing the study for the presentation, but the marketing part gets left out. So it's like, you've done all this work, but then it's like the people that need to hear it, hear it and be exposed to the information, they don't get they don't get the opportunity to get exposed to it because you haven't marketed your work. And I think a lot of times, you know, we do that and that's something that we have to work on. I think we have to just become aggressive with our marketing because a lot of the things that are that our youth know and our you know that, that you know our children know about and you know the adults know about is because there's a aggressive there's an aggressive marketing machine. I would also often think about this a lot of times when I would think about like bourgeois black folks that you know work in education, and they would always make these comments about you know inner city you know and um, poor or working class parent, black parents that don't come to back to school night or don't come to report card conferences, and they would always make these and I'd say okay I can agree with that that there should be more of a participation in these um, activities, but then they would always make this con- this contrast. And it was like, you know, a, a non-scientific analysis on their part. Cause they would say, oh, well, you know, if it was a Beyonce concert, you know, they, they would be there. If it was a Jay-Z concert, they would be there. And I'm like, I see what you're trying to say, but what they're leaving out is the reality of the fact that Jay-Z and Beyonce both have marketing machines behind them. And now, so you're going to know about the concert. You're going to be constantly reminded about the concert. And also there's a value, there's a social capital attached to those concerts and just being present in those spaces. There's a social capital. And that's not anything brand new. We're talking about years and years of social social conditioning and people, you know, 30, so you're a 30-year-old man or a 30-year-old woman. Your whole life, you have been conditioned to um, believe that these activities and these concerts and events, your presence in these spaces gives you human value and human worth. You're not school, uh, back to school night, and report card conferences have not been marketed like that. They haven't. Maybe maybe there are some principals out there that might do that, but consistently, overall, culturally speaking, they have not been marketed like that in the public school and charter school systems. Now, so my thing is, well, if you want the parents to come out, you got to market it to them. You got to produce that same type of feeling that they would have that they associate with being at the Jay-Z concert or the Beyonce concert. That's your responsibility. You can't just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, it's on them. You know, I mean, in a perfect world, sure. If there was more cultural capital, you know, that my, my father, Dr. Brian Morrison, he wrote about this in his dissertation, the cultural capital that used to be more associated with education, which is not as much associated with education anymore. But if in 2021, if there was cultural capital associated with formal education, then more, then more people would naturally go to um, we'll go to back to school nights and, you know, report card conferences in droves, right? But it's not like that. So we have to deal with reality and meet people where they are and understand that. And the same thing with, uh, with Pan-Africanism and, you know, black nationalism, we have to really start thinking about like, 
okay, like how, how, how is any idea or any feeling or any activity that becomes popular, how does it become popular? Um, and there's this other, this other concept that I've, I've been studying um, or I've been exposed to in my studies uh, called network effect. How do we create a network effect? That's really what we're trying, what, we, what should be the goal, network effect. Network effect is when people associate, I guess, whether it's customers or just typical um, consumers, they associate a value with a certain thing just because it's the thing that most people do. Like a good example would be uh, iPhones versus Androids. The iPhone has the network effect. And the network effect becomes very important because I've never owned an Android, but there are people that I trust and respect that will, that know more about technology than I do that will tell me that the Android makes a far superior, more superior product, right? That's what they tell me. And I trust that. I trust because I know I, I basically have an iPhone because everybody else got an iPhone. And, and, I, and I started, I, I got a, I got an iPhone 10 years ago, and I keep upgrading to new iPhones. I don't know, the Android might be a better product, but Apple has produced network effect. So, you know, and the whole thing with, you know, the different things that Apple, having an Apple product provides, it's like, okay, well, I have the iPhone. So when I send a text message, it's blue. Or when somebody that has an iPhone sends me a text message, it's blue. It makes me feel comfortable. It makes me feel all good inside. And so, you know, when I see a green text message, <laughs> I start to feel a little weird, right? So... It's, it's like it's, it's network effects. So and then the question is, how do we create network effect with um, with 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 Pan Africanism, right? With uh, with nationalism, and in the way that network effect has been created with assimilationism, where it seems normal and cool to just try to fit in in America and do what the white people say, and and just try to get a I guess strive for a piece of the pie, when piece of their pie that they control, or strive for a seat at their table that they control, which is not a democratic table anyway. So at any moment, so you say, okay, it's cool. You, you might feel okay, cool. I got my seat at the table. But if they gave you the seat at the table, they can take the seat at the table away from you at the same time. So what we have to do is we have to start thinking more about creating our own tables in our own spaces, where we, you know, we are responsible for everything that we do. Um, and that's really, it's, again, it, it goes back to the marketing. Like, how do we market that? Even with math. Like, math is marketed in a certain way. It has been marketed to us in a certain way as something that we should avoid. Math has been marketed as though it's a bully that we should, that has no value to us. It's, it's the bane of our existence. It's something that we should fear, something that we should hate. And then we pass it on intergenerationally to our children. Because we have the same, those, those feelings have been implanted into us. And we've accepted them. We've accepted this idea that we can't do math. So when it becomes challenging, which many things become challenging, but it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that, oh, well, I can't do it. See, it's hard. I, I, right. This means this because they told me I'm not supposed to be able to do it. Right. I wasn't born with the math gene. I don't believe there is a math gene. Many people do, though. Right. To kind of justify their, um, their poor performance in mathematics. And there are a lot of reasons why people perform poorly in mathematics. But I think we have to start with a belief that we can do it. And the belief that you can't do it has been marketed heavily. So if we turn around, we say as a community, we take responsibility and say that we want to teach our own children mathematics and make sure that they excel in mathematics. Because we know that in order, in order to achieve and be successful at independent nation building, they have to understand mathematics, or at least a lot of us have to understand mathematics, right? Then we'll market math differently. Math will, be, math will be marketed differently. People will feel differently about mathematics and will feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do this. See, basketball has been marketed to us. 
You know, there are people that are like trash at basketball, but they think they can play. <laughs> and they think they can be able to play because basketball has been marketed to them, right? Chicken sandwiches from Popeyes have been marketed to us. Commercial rap music has, and commercial R&B music has been marketed to us. Mathematics has never been marketed to us in a way that we would think that we should be active participants in it and excel at it on a large scale. We, uh, we do accept that there may be some of us in our neighborhood, maybe the one, the one boy or the one girl, that, oh, sh- she's good at math, he's good at math. Okay, you're our, you're our resident anomaly. You're our resident anomaly and you excel at mathematics. That's, that's been marketed. But that, that, just ties in, that just goes further to promote this idea of Negro exceptionalism. And it's used as a tool to separate some of those some of the, some of those of us that are that are bright and do excel academically from the masses. So that really that's that's another tool of neocolonialism. So that's that's the key because you got to say okay, well let me let me find the the so-called smart ones and get them to come work with us. So you get them to go to to the, to the citywide schools, the magnet schools, you know, get them training, give them scholarships, get them access to programs that everybody doesn't get access to. And then, you know, it's like Woodson talked about, then after they finish college, they're useless to the community because in that, all that training, they've been told how um, subhuman and inhumane, inhumane black people and African people collectively are. So you really don't want to service them. But then that may be the only opportunity for you to make money. And then you hate your work because you hate the black people that you're charged with servicing. So but, you know, that's, that's another tool of neocolonialism. But all your life, you were good at math. Right. But you didn't have that cultural grounding and that political grounding to understand that, no, this is not the exclusive domain of, you, of these Europeans or Asians or Arabs or whoever. This is the domain of your people. Your ancestors helped develop these formulas and recognize these patterns in nature thousands and thousands of years ago and documented them. It's just that, again, in terms of marketing, Europeans control the textbooks. They control the textbooks so then they're able to say, Okay, no, this is us. They're able to name all the formulas after their people. And that's another thing we got to do too. That's something else I talk about in um, with systematics, is renaming some of these concepts um, after after black folks. Like I, I have a method of, uh, I mean, I didn't discover this method, but this method is is used um, among many people. Um, you can go on YouTube and find examples of this method of factoring polynomial or factoring quadratic trinomials. I call it the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz method. Because the way you set it up is some people on YouTube, it'll, it'll be called the diamond method. I say diamond method. Okay, that's cute. It's a little generic, you know. But, again, like I talked about earlier, leaving money on the table. Well, I could, I could teach a child the diamond method of factoring quadratic trinomials and just call it that. And then they'll think in their head, okay, diamond method. But I'm leaving money on the table because I call it the Malcolm X Betty Shabazz method because, which also promotes the idea of African complementarity that Malimu Baruti writes extensively about and is having this complementarity conference coming up next next month, right? Um, because the first step is you draw X. You draw X and then you put different numbers from the original expression in different parts of the X. And then next to that, you draw a two-by-two two grid, a small little two-by-two two, uh, grid. And then you put different values inside the grid, and then you do factoring. You factor the rows and you factor the, uh, the columns. So I'm like, okay, the X is Malcolm X. And then the grid is Betty Shabazz. So we can talk about that. So every time, so the child learns that, then every time that they do this method, they're thinking about Malcolm X. They're thinking about black nationalism. They're thinking about black radical tradition. They're thinking about Betty Shabazz. They're thinking about a a black man and a black woman coming together and building a family. They're thinking about that. And we're doing that in a math class. And that's a part of marketing. 
that's like the marketing that I think we have to do. So I'm like, I'm like, yeah, let's just do it. You know, because we don't need permission. We don't need permission. A lot of our people think that we need permission from white people to do things. And we don't. Yeah, brother Keel, the, um, <laughs> let me, let, let me, I'm going to throw this in the mix and uh, ask you a couple, we got a couple callers too. I want, I want you to hold on briefly while I, uh, uh, get a couple answers from uh, Brother Keel. Uh, two things I want to mention. One of the things dealing with the propaganda. Um, that'll be second. First, I want to deal with something you mentioned to Richard in the first hour of the program. But I want to set it up like this to get your opinion. Um, we see that since we've been in this country that we've been at war. No, I don't want to say at war. Uh, that we've been attacked and uh, through recent years, maybe through the mid 20th century on to present, we've been excellent at putting our hands up, but not collectively fighting back. Now we've been collectively attacked by Europeans, but we haven't collectively fought back. I'll use a boxing analogy. You know, when you're up against the ropes and the guy's punching your face, punching in your gut, and you put your hands up, you can block some of the punches, but you're still getting punched. You're not counter-punching. You're not punching back with force like he's punching you. That's what I'm saying. As a collective community, I don't think that we've been punching back. We have to train our children to be able to punch back and become victorious. Now, when you gave the analogy of in the classroom on college campuses uh, and spaces that we're supposed to control, HBCUs and other classrooms where you have class struggles among certain black people, these classes that have been forced upon us by Europeans, and you have black teachers in classrooms that hate black children, as you said, and say that you're stopping me from... Uh, you making me look bad, that type of attitude, or have outright animosity towards black children. How dangerous and detrimental is that? And when I say, as far as I struggle now, do you equate that as almost as dangerous as dealing with Europeans, or do you put that on another level? That's an excellent question. And as I, as I think, I don't think anyone's asked me that question before. Like, Because, again, what you've just done is you asked me a mathematical question. So I, I have a great appreciation for that question because I have to do a comparative analysis. So I have to quantify like which one is greatest. Right. Um, I think it might be uh, initially, I want to say, and this is, this is not, but I want to be very clear because this is not to lessen or minimize the impact of you know, white supremacy mythology and Eurocentrism practiced by Europeans mm -hmm. uh, against us. But I would I would be tempted, without having thought about very deeply about this question, but I'll be tempted to say that that black teacher that is a class antagonizer may be more harmful because most people are inclined, well, I, I mean, I, I assume most people are inclined to believe that their skin folk are their kin folk. Okay. All right. Okay, go ahead. So then you put yourself in a position where, it's like I believe that I'm supposed to trust you because I'm black and you're black. But then you do things that are counter to embracing my humanity. And then 
I might be again, and again, this is this is part of the neo-colonial project because this is what, like Malcolm said, all goodbyes don't mean I'm gone. He said that in the last message. He was describing what was happening on the continent of Africa when Great Britain says, "Okay, you know what? We got all these colonies, but we're the colonial governors. We can't stay here forever because because they know that okay, they're black, we're white. They are able to readily identify us as the enemy. So, but we've been planning for this." We've been educating some of them, or schooling, not educating, we've been schooling some of them to take our place, right? We've been schooling some of them to take our place as the colonial governors, as the teachers, as the uh, the police force. So therefore, you know, maybe they won't be as aggressive with people that look like them, but yet the people that look like them, they'll end up being like the, the Seiko Mabutus in, in, in the Congo. You know, to come through and okay, you know, I'm gonna turn my, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a switch, switch up on, you know, Lumumba is my guy, but I'm gonna switch up on him because I really want to be down with the Belgians and, and the United States and and the rest of the European nations. I don't want to get some money while I help them come in and rape and pillage the whole country, and my people and the people starve, right? Um, so that's really part of the neo-colonial project. So it, it still manifests itself today in the public schools and the charter schools because you have the you have the black teachers and that's why we got to be very careful because we're so caught up in these, like, I guess, identity politics, you would call it. And just black representation, this desperation for black representation, it caused us to be very super, many of us to be very superficial and not look deeper at, okay, who's, who are these, whose interests are these people representing? Cause we just want to see somebody black. Cause we feel like that's winning because for so long, black people have been denied access to certain spaces. Um, and that's why the thing is, the goal really should be for us to create our own spaces. Because once you create your own spaces, then it's a different conversation anyway. But as long as you're, you're, you're only focused on and fixated on getting into spaces that are not controlled by you, then it's like, okay, you be, it's very confusing because now it's like, okay, like I want to trust you because you're black. And for so long, they always had a white person there. But there's never been a black person there. So my assumption is that, okay, this black person is going to be on our side. And then they can, like, you know, shuck and jive and dance and, you know, put on some Timberland boots or whatever and you wear a dashiki and you think they're on your side. And these Europeans know this because, again, it comes back to marketing because they know what affects us. They know what we want to see. They know what images we trust and they know what images we distrust collectively because they've done the analysis. Because they're very, they're very, I mean, we, we have to respect it. We have to respect it and we have to learn, learn some things from them and watch and say, okay, well, how are they able to, so easily maintain control. And this, this is one of the things Bobby Wright talked about. And Francis Cross Wilson exposed it. They're 10% of the global population. So how are they able to control us in the way they do? They're able to leverage, you know, certain practices and certain activities. One of them mainly back to um, uh, Brother Rich's question about marketing. They're shrewd marketers. So they're able to get the most bang for their buck. And again, like, like I was saying to your question, Elliot, it's about, you know, it's the, it's the neo-colonial project. It's part of neo-colonialism. The, the, black, the black teachers, uh, a lot of black administrators, um, black people in any, we have to be very careful. And this is not to say that we have to just write off any black person that's in, in a position that's controlled by whites. But that's a mistake that some of us make too. And I've, I've, I might have leaned toward that in the past myself. And that's also a mistake. That's also an error. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to do the analysis. Yes, and keep and a, a keep a scorecard. 
Because people, once you start doing the analysis and people just want to label you a hater and write you off just for doing the analysis, just asking the question. And I think we have to, we have to be in, in this, in a neo-colonial situation, we have to do that type of analysis. But the problem is also people don't know what neo-colonialism is. The word, that word is not in their lexicon. And I believe that, I firmly believe that if they understood what neo-colonialism was, then a lot of things that, that you and people like us talk about would not seem so strange to them. And a lot of things that get, when we get duped into believing things and accepting things, it, it wouldn't be so easy for that to happen. Because we understand, okay, this is, this is like, neo, so many things that happen to us and happen in the United States and happen abroad that we see, it's like neo-colonialism one-on-one. And it's like, okay, yeah, we definitely just don't know what neo-colonialism is. But then again, that brings it all. It brings us back to this recurrent theme. We shouldn't. Even, we shouldn't expect. Asada Shakur said that you can't expect anybody that's in power and oppressing you to teach you, educate you how to take them out of power, how to remove them from power over you. So we shouldn't even expect that. So a lot of times when people ask questions about, well, why aren't you teaching this in school? Why aren't you teaching that in school? Because they're not supposed to. We have to understand. We have to understand that this is this is an adversarial situation. Like if I'm if I'm bullying you, if we're in school, we're in elementary school or middle school, and I'm bullying you, I'm not going to teach you how to fight me and beat me up so I can stop bullying you. That would be insane. I'm not going to do that. So we have to understand this, the situation that we're in, and we have to stop kind of falling for the marketing that, you know, those that are oppressing us are actually our friends because they're not our friends. They're our let, oppressors. Now, now let, let let me transition over to my second comment and then i'm sorry I, i'm gonna get these because there's two callers sitting here i'm gonna get them on let's deal with propaganda and it kind of relates to when we had uh, jared ball on richard and he mm-hmm. talked about propaganda <clears throat> let's and, and i'm going to read briefly three reports to tie into what i'm throwing out here to both you and richard Billerkeel, and the listening audience they want to get involved in that this particular question uh we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Now, when this thing first started and they shut things down, keep in mind the whole time, the Europeans didn't want to be shut down. They didn't want their businesses closed. They wanted everything to be like it was. They didn't want to wear no masks, stuff like that. So when things shut down, they kept saying that, this country needs to reach 70% before what they consider herd immunity before you could take off your mask. You, you remember that being said? And you still with me, Richard? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I'm gonna... okay. Now we see that things is going into quote unquote phase two of their experimental case study. Uh, in June sometime, several plans, some places around the country already that, uh, throw away your mask, 100% capacity, back to normal. Uh, so they want to see how things go, even though they haven't reached the 70%, as they claim. All the while, they've been marketing among, especially the black community, about getting a vaccine. I, I was watching the basketball game the other day. They had three commercials on with three different uh, sports star, uh, NBA stars, talking about the vaccine, and then they had another commercial with John Legend on there talking about get the vaccine, get the shot, or whatever. Now, they're already saying 
that they're going to open up in June. Because I'm more than sure they want to see how things go once people start moving around again. Now, at the same time they're saying this about opening up, let me read these these three brief articles. And it's more in other cities. But I'll just use these as a template. And they came out, different publications this past week. Black residents, and this is out of the Washington Post, black residents now account for more than eight of Eight out of 10 D.C. coronavirus cases, uh, May 25th. Black people make up more than 80% of the coronavirus cases reported in the District of Columbia in recent weeks, uh, compared to 46% last year. A disparity that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser highlighted in a call toward a community leaders on Tuesday. I got a troubling statistic from Dr. Nesbitt today that the percent of people of color, black and brown, who are getting corona has gone up, Bowser told the Anacostia Coordinating Council, referring to D.C. Health Director uh, LaQuandra Nesbitt. And this is a direct function of vaccination. I'm terrified that this thing could become a black and brown disease and that it will stay in our community for a long time, uh, says Reed Tuxen, the founder of Black Coalition Against COVID-19 told the Anacostia Coordinated Council during the Zoom call, if we don't get our vaccination rate up, we're going to be in a tough situation. The district has fully vaccinated 44% of its population, according to the Washington Post, and has reported uh, racial data at about 70% of those uh, vaccinations. The city estimates that 19% of the black residents of Washington, D.C., has been vaccinated, 19%, according to these figures. Now, here's something from Louisville. Black Louisvillians now account for about half of new coronavirus cases. Black Louisville residents now account for about half of all new coronavirus cases in the city, officials said on Tuesday. A development mayor, Greg Fisher, called alarming in Jefferson County, about 22% of the residents are black and until recently have been showing disproportionate rates of infection, Fisher said in a uh, news briefing to health officials. Sequita Reynolds, president and CEO of Louisville Urban League, says she's well aware of the lower rates of vaccination among the black Louisvillians and is working with Moyer and other city health officials to improve the outreach uh to those individuals. I've been saddened to learn that people of color in my community we serve do not feel confident in the vaccine, Reynolds says. These same people, they're supportive of their parents getting the vaccine, but they don't want to be vaccinated. Some still worry about the potential long-term consequences of a vaccine or remain unsure about the safety. One idea, she says, is to find people in the black community who have lost loved ones to COVID-19 and are willing to publicly share their stories and hopes of encouraging others to get vaccinated and helping them trust the science behind the vaccine. Reynolds says she hopes such testimonials might help people overcome hesitation to get vaccinated. They don't have trust, and that's really an obstacle, she said. I think there is an idea that people have worked through their fears and challenges, and that's just not so. The people have not worked through their fears.
Meanwhile, the Urban League continues efforts to make the vaccine accessible, uh, including uh, through June 8th vaccine, whatever. Now, let me skip that one. Here's the last one. Once again, black Memphians, uh, Memphis residents, make up the vast majority of new COVID-19 cases. In Shelby County, uh, more than 340,000 people, or 36%, have received uh, one shot. And of those residents, 19 to 19% are black. In zip code 38106, uh, uh Volunteers have canvassed in among these areas with low vaccine, high intake, high infection rates. The area is 96% black, only 24% vaccinated, and has a case rate of 29, uh, 249 infections per 100,000. In the zip codes with the lowest vaccine uptakes, uh, 38,127 and 38,115, uh, which are 19% and 21% vaccinated. Residents are 84% black in both. So we see here that in several of the, well, let me finish this paragraph. There has been local incentives earlier this month. The city of Memphis announced shot for a shot sweepstakes, a promotion where a resident can go get vaccinated before May 31st and can enter a contest to win a new car. In April, officials gave away gift cards and coupons to thousands of people at Pipkin vaccination site. Harris has begun a community council to brainstorm and evaluate ideas to increase the vaccine uptake. Other cities are using incentives too. In New Orleans, officials partnered with the seafood uh, industry to offer a free pound of crawfish to every person who gets the shot. Ohio is holding uh, five lotteries in which vaccinated people can win a million dollars. In efforts to increase convenience, New York City has set up a mass va- mass vaccination site in the subways where commuters can get the shot quickly. So we see here that several of these publications, almost simultaneous with the opening of society, so to speak, take off your mask, that several of these publications, and there's others, Los Angeles, are saying the same thing, and there's other cities. But I just use these three as a little template. Several of these cities is putting out information that you, and when I say you, I'm talking about black folks in this country are not getting vaccinated and don't want to get vaccinated. Why are they doing that? What's the end game? What's the propaganda here? Our people should be thinking about that. Because, uh, listen, we live in society and uh, and family members that we know and maybe friends have been vaccinated. But what's the purpose? Because they're not putting out figures that white people are not getting vaccinated. I don't see those figures. I don't see uh, Larry Bird and, well, I'm just Larry Bird's, uh, 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 some white sports figures running around on commercials telling white people to get vaccinated. What is the objective? What is the propaganda? What is the end game for? Not only opening up society, but then putting out information that black people are not getting vaccinated. My estimation, in my opinion, is that when this stuff breaks out again, which it will, you'll be the demon. 
you'll be the person that they blame. I, I'm just saying that. I don't know how you feel about it, Brother Keel or Richard. I, I, what's your opinion on that before we kind of uh, get a call or two in here? My opinion on that is, you know, I, there's been no other time in my life that I wish I knew a lot more about epidemiology. I really wish I knew more about ep- epidemiology because um, there are a lot of things that I've, I've heard in the past year surrounding the you know COVID nineteen or the coronavirus that I I just don't, I fundamentally don't understand and just a lot of uh, contradictory information. Um, more, more recently, I remember hearing that if you you get the vaccine, you still need to wear a mask. And then more more recent than that, I've heard if you have the vaccine, you don't need to wear a mask. Well, states are relaxing their requirements on mask wearing, so I'm just very I'm just very confused about a lot of it and, and apparently i don't really understand how vaccines work because i thought that with a vaccine then it made you immune you know similar to when you were a child when i was a child i think i got the measles mumps and rubella vaccine you know, mm-hmm. and I, I had no i had no anxiety that i would ever i had an expectation i would never be able to contract measles mumps or rubella so maybe i was incorrect for making that assumption maybe i just have never understood well that's what they vaccine. that's what they did say in the beginning about this this uh quote-unquote vaccine but when information was leaking out that people were still catching it after they were vaccinated, then they changed it and said, well, the vaccination will keep you from getting sick or hospitalized. They didn't say that in the beginning. They said it would prevent you from getting COVID-19. So to think the narrative and all this stuff is changing. But now, you know, we see that they're opening up society. Take off your mask, fill up stadiums, fill up arenas, watch basketball games. But now they're putting out at the same time that black people is the ones not getting vaccinated. So when something break out, which is will, because this pandemic has not went anywhere. If you look at other nations around the world, this stuff is, is morphed into other things. And it's only this country has more deaths than any other nation in the world. So it's going to break out again. So when it does. Uh. Public enemy number one, which we've always been, is going to be blamed. Go ahead, Richard. It's too, uh, uh, and, and I, I accept the, you know, the, the the point that you make it of, of being a blame. But it's what's interesting. The point that's interesting to me as it relates to our position within this country and our psychology that we have to. That I want to even say you know, as a reaction, celebrate. Uh, one position is that when they first started, they said the black people were more susceptible because of our health mobilities mm-hmm. to catch the virus. And we know our health mobilities was because of our social positioning within the society. Diabetes, you know, um, bad diet, mm-hmm. hypertension, um, not being able to get the the kind of foods that um, the the real foods that is necessary that would increase or 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 strengthen if that's if that's a term, but at least um, work with our immune system. So it was our social condition that they that was created such a fear that they came out initially and said when everybody when it was the great fear of everybody dying that black people were going to die in mass numbers because of that. And it wasn't, and we have to accept or 
it's understood and black people understood whatever their social positioning that that wasn't because of our situation individually that's because of the condition that we were in by this society that has been over generations or since we've been here that's the that's one side of the the equation that 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 struck me so the you know on the other side if we start uh if it comes back and we start dying because we didn't you know that's that's that if and and some more of them um go to hospital because they did if they blame us we were already set up but the the <laughs> thing that i celebrate is that you know and they don't want to delve into why we don't trust the vaccine <laughs> that cultural historical phenomenon that they're pointing to that they're not elaborating on is that black people have don't trust because of and they give us only these one or two cases right Henrietta Lacks the Tuskegee but you know and they might throw in there you know um black women um um ability, you know going to 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 the hospitals or or the whole thing about pain but black people experience in this society as it relates to white folks has been we don't trust you now we we work with you and some of us and I, I think brother killer you you make references to you know even while we're dealing with getting the bag getting the trinkets buying into all of that we still know we black and white america right what this is showing out is that black people say you telling me this is a new thing you want to inject in me you've been testing on me you've been using me and i'm supposed to be just just cuz you said that this is some thing that i don't know as brother kill say i don't know nothing about i don't know nothing about no viruses i don't know nothing about no you know uh messenger mnr m you know mrna i don't know nothing about that all i know is you said you created this in the laboratory and you want me to take the shot and i'm supposed to trust you on this right now something inside of us, us culturally is saying no i'm not no, don't matter of fact I, i'm willing to take the death than to take that right now now i'll wait and see Matter of fact, I'll wait and see how y'all going to respond to that <laughs> before I take it. That's that's what I'm uh, I'm right, you know, wrong, rightfully or wrongfully, but that's that's what I'm taking because they're not with all these giveaways, they're not exploring and publicizing why is black folks in such large numbers all over the country not trusting something when they telling it you don't do it, it's going to kill you. Now, and if you remember, Richard, uh, months ago, they were showing, in fact, they showed the first person that took the shot in this nation was a black woman up there in New York City. Right. And they right. were showing all kind of propaganda that blacks was all over taking the shot. They had mm -hmm. shots here in Philadelphia. Blacks lined up half the night getting all these shots. And people was buying in. Some people was buying into the fact that blacks was taking the shots all over the place. Now they see that blacks haven't been taking these shots. Uh, 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 as opposed to the propaganda that had been put out there that black people mm -hmm. was taking shots. 
Let's go to uh, 505, and I apologize, Albuquerque. You've been waiting a long time. 505? No, I'm just listening, man. I agree with everything. What's this brother, what is his name is speaking? Uh, Professor Akil Parker. Yeah, well, I agree. I, I'm 80 years old. I agree with everything he just said. Peace. <laughs> okay. <laughs> listen, listen. Thank you for your contribution, sir. Go ahead. Thank you for your contribution, brother. Thank you. All right. Let's go to 646. 646. Hey, hey, what's what's up, Richard and Elliot, man? Uh, are y'all on open form or, or what? What's the deal? Well, it's open now. It's open to you. As always, like it should be. No, right, right, right quick, man. Um, I don't know if you saw it or not. That post that uh, one of your your boys did in regards to this whole thing with uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I, I think you got an idea of what I'm talking about. Now, I must say I agree with some of it, and I agree and I disagree with some of it also. Now. We were talking Friday night about uh, you mentioning this brother named Michael Harriet. I'm telling you, man, I don't know if you're on Twitter or not, but anybody that's listening who may be on Twitter need to check out a thread that Michael Harriet did in regards to the whole Tulsa situation very very good thread and i think some of that information that you know what i'm talking about may have gotten it from his thread now this is the craziest thing that i didn't know about until i think it was yesterday or today the person that was accused of raping the white woman that started all of this incident, from my understanding, him and that white woman left Tulsa and went to California and had a bunch of babies. I I don't I, I don't know do, I have no clue. Yeah, I got to do some further further uh, research on it, but that's what that's what I heard. That was partially in the thread. But the whole thing, the whole thing is this: there's people who are saying that there wasn't an abundance. Now, of now, now wait a minute. Before you say that, before you say that, keep in mind that the guy that was accused was in custody already, and they were threatening to hang him. In right. fact, blacks had armed themselves and went to the, the, the city hall to try to protect him, and they were right. rebuffed by a thousand white people with guns. So right. if, they, if that's the case or if that's the case or rumor that somehow he was released from jail and absconded with this white woman to California, I don't know whether that especially after all in, all yeah, our I ancestors know. was bombed and burned out. I but I doubt if they let him out of the prison cell to go and leave town with a white woman. I'm just saying yeah, that's why that's why I said that's why I said I gotta do I gotta do more research the whole thing to be honest if the truth be told there needs to be a, a 
more research in regards to this whole Tulsa thing because there's a narrative that's trying to be played as far as I'm concerned. Like, a lot of people are trying not to hold these white folks, you know, accountable for it. And on top of that, you know, you got black folks who are trying to use this as another tool to make these Democrats seem to be our so-called allies and friends based on the shenanigans that's going on with the voter rights and things of that nature in these other states. It's, it's, I, I, I see it all as a form of manipulation and game being played because these Democrats are not holding up to their responsibility to paying black people back for putting their white asses in office or giving them the so-called control of the so-called democracy. So there, there's a lot of things here at play. But what I, what I was trying to say is I think that there was a virgin community within Tulsa, but it may not be on the level that they're trying to really, really make the narrative out to be. You know what I mean? Because remember, and let's be very honest about it, just like today, most black people work for white people. Now, do black people have businesses and things of that nature? Yes, they do at that time, and yes, they do now. But unfortunately, our problem as a people is something that we don't want to be honest and deal with or really address is our willingness and overabundance of working for white folks and doing the bidding for white folks and not us separating and being with ourselves and trying to build institutions for ourselves and for our community like every other community does. That's what we got to start being honest about. The majority of our people work for white folks. And we got to deal with this because the point of the matter is our so-called leaders are putting us in this real serious, dangerous position of whiteness. You know, I mean, it's something that I don't think our people realize is that whenever somebody's trying to get you to be a part of the Democratic Party and give your all to the Democrat or the Republican Party, it's strictly about you serving at the coattails of white folks. Let's just keep it real. That's all That's all it's about. You go out here, you get these so-called black faces like a war doc out of a ladder, and he ain't doing the damn thing for black folks. You ain't even hearing him really say anything. You go out there and you get your so-called ally like Oztag, and he ain't really doing nothing for black folks. But every time you turn around, they want to big up Latasha Brown and the rest of these Negroes talking about vote, 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 vote. It's a democracy, blah, blah, blah. It ain't no damn democracy going on in this country. It's almost, it's almost at the point, if we got to be honest, to whereas the Republicans, because of their shenanigans, are going to be able to dictate and control the direction of a of this country go 
through a real serious small majority. And the bottom line is, until you realize that most of these so-called Democrats are Republicans and their sole issue and sole purpose is to protect whiteness, we got to be in this trick bag. And we better wake up soon because, you know, when people talk about Jim Crow, everything in society has to evolve to the point to where when they enslave you and keep you enslaved, it has to be done on the level to where, as unfortunately, you accept it. That's all. And that's what's happening to us. We accepted our enslavement in this country and don't even realize it. But you know, but, but, people not but, accountable. but you know, it's interesting as, as you say that now, I don't, and I, and I definitely don't want to chase it and, and brother kills want to give you your words, but as I listen to what you're saying, you know, especially when we put it in a neo-colonial context, what you're describing is the um, internal operation of a neo-colonial relationship. That's one, you know, and as uh, Brother Akil said earlier, we may not even know what that really means. But what I what I find is, um, as you know, when Elliot brought up those the, the the last article and applying what's behind that to what you just described, there is, you know, you could say that the that people not wanting a large population of people not involved in all uh, they're not talking about politics or economics or or labor relations they are demonstrating a level of resistance in what this quote-unquote white society is saying that you should do now and we see that white society in numbers just using the, the numbers that elliot raised they had responded. They have no mistrust. And they have responded by action in numbers, but Black society hasn't. So though it may, again, it may not be as, as you get in, in, in what you described using another uh, social construction as far as, you know, um, uh, beliefs, you know, of, of action and working who work with or work for or who what party we participate in we're doing those things but this here gets shows at some fundamental level there is a resistance that black people have a large number of black people have because when they did the survey they were saying it got stuck over 60 percent and they surveyed I think it was even 70% of black people had not taken the vaccine and they had not taken it because of the trust factor. So that means, and it goes again back to what brother Akil said, it's not a question that we don't recognize the condition that we're in. It may be our, what we've been talking about earlier, our marketing to us, the choice even to the more complex thing that you raise, how are we going to feed ourselves in an environment that what Tulsa explained where white folks, even up to January 6th, and been doing through the police department, have been showing that they will come out 
and provide and, and execute the kind of abuse and murder on us and we're not militarily prepared. Because everybody said January 6th, if that was black folks at that Capitol, the response that would have gotten, this is black folks saying this, another indication of our belief system, the response that would have gotten would not have been the same response. And later on, I don't think it was three weeks, a guy comes with a knife with the, with the National Guard and they shoot him. And he didn't even get to the gate. Yeah, but, but, but the thing is this, though. The thing is, January 6th is a manipulation of whiteness. You're missing you my point, but I, I'll, 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 I'll concede. I understand, you, I understand you, you're missing my point, though. But okay. No, no, no. You're, the point is this. Black folks don't look at things from the lens of taking power from white folks. Black folks look at things from the position of getting along with white folks, doing nothing to upset white folks because subliminally in the back of their minds, they afraid that the white man gonna kill them, if the truth be told. Now, when you look at what's going on in regards to January 6th. Well, I can't agree with that, but go ahead, finish your point. But what I'm saying is, if you look at what's going on with January 6th, it's now a, a, a game being played on the public that it's the Democrats against the Republicans. But the reality is, how do you have such a small group with so many people in the country not agreeing what went on January 6th to be able to control the narrative on how it's going to move forward and then use it as a tool to basically control that narrative? So whereby they're going to supposedly stop the investigation, what they did. Now the Democrats are going to set up their own commission. And when they set up the commission, the Democrats are going to, no, excuse me, the Republicans is going to now say that that's a witch hunt. And the the people are going to be confused and don't know what to do, just like how they used before. Benghazi. And all of this, black folks are really out of the loop, capping for the Democrats, but because of the way that it's being manipulated, white folks going to stay in power, and white folks is going to, one portion of whiteness is going to use it to governate the people so that they can stay in power. And here it is, what are black folks going to gain? It's like we constantly and totally being manipulated by these forces because we haven't figured out how we need to do what we need to do for black people, African people, or whatever, and let these sick white folks do what they're going to do for themselves because the bottom line is as things are shrinking and shrinking, white folks ain't really got no use for black people that much anymore well i, I don't think I mean, it's I, 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 listen you know, I, I don't think it's a thing where black po- black people can't figure it out see when you when you in a battle situation 
and I, I don't want to use the term at war because collectively I don't think that we're fighting back. I think collectively we react. But when, when you're in a battle situation, communication is key. It helps your coordination and everything else. So when in 1994, after they seen what was done, not through black, it wasn't no black television. After they seen what was done through black radio in 1995, bringing all them people down there in Washington, they never had a gathering like that. Even for all this foolishness white folks do, they never had a gathering like that in Washington with 2 million, 1.5, 2 million people down, black people, no white black people down there. When they seen that, they seen the danger of that. They was looking ahead. They were playing chess. They seen the danger of that and said, oh, wait, wait a minute. They use black radio to galvanize all these people. Let's change the law. And that's what they did. The black people's friend, some black people's friend, Bill Clinton and some of his black minions changed that law and allowed uh, the, the Telecommunications Act of 1996 or the ninth, whatever year it was and change that law, allowing these stations to be bought up by conglomerates. So that cut out the legs of black radio. Now you only got, on the terrestrial level, you ain't, you ain't got that. You can almost count them on two hands. Yeah. And, it, and especially ones that's going to talk about some valuable information. You don't have it. But those are the same gatekeepers today. That certainly today, it is. Elliot, certainly. The Democratic Party used. Certainly. Certainly it yeah. is. And some of those men have gotten old. Some of them have passed away. And, I, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on the men that passed away because some of them, they might have been under the illusions that they was doing well for black people. They might have. Right. I'll oh, give them the like benefit it. of that doubt. But, see, they're, they're cultivating other new ones to take their places. They know that these yeah. guys like Clyburn and all of them is getting old. So now they're coming up with the Warnocks. They was coming up with that yeah. guy down in Florida that was caught or uh, have uh, with uh, with two men Gilliam. in the room getting Monkey poked. Man at, yeah, they, they was coming up with people like that to take their place, and they still coming up with other people to take their place. Other young ones, other black ones, other hey, young Kanyabe, black ones. What's that clown Kanyabe in your in your area? Well, the, I, the, whoever, it doesn't even matter. Their lifestyles or what they do. No, all I'm saying, saying all I'm saying I, is they coming up with I'm young black ones to take their place. We right. should be coming up with people that we cultivate from these communities, not to buy into assimilation, but to take our people towards freedom. Yeah. But our people, our people don't want to, don't want to hear independent voices. No, I don't our agree with that. Brother Keel, well, listen, do it. What do you think about that? I say a portion, a portion, my, my bad. Let me say a portion of our people don't, don't want to hear it. It, it, it. When you start talking, um, as they say, that black stuff, they don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? Well, they they the, start the, saying, you know, the usual. But, well, check, go ahead, go ahead brother. I where you're coming from, though. It, here's the thing, though. I think we have, again, it's, it's, there's a lot of marketing. Marketing. There's a lot of marketing around the naysayers and the people that don't want independence. So what you have, initially, it can be very frustrating because, when you when you do your your own analysis and you look at you know pan Africanism, you look at nationalism, and you look at these solutions that you see, and then you want it for everybody, 
and then you come in contact with people that don't want it, uh, it can be discouraging. But this is what you this is what we have to do, and we we can look at this mathematically. If we're in a room with twenty people, and we start talking about nation building, we start talking about building independent infrastructure, independent institutions, and things like that. And if eighteen people are like, no, nah, that ain't gonna work. We're not doing that. We don't want to do that. This you sound crazy. But it's two people that are like, I'm with you, brother. I hear what you're saying. Tell me more about that. What you're saying makes some sense. One of the problem, one of the problems that many of us do have is that we focus on those 18 people. We don't focus on that minority. Because again, we have to remember. And I think a lot of time, I think this should inform the work that any of us do. And I learned this from from you know listening to, to the late Bobby Wright. He was talking about consensus. He said, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to get consensus from 40 million black folks. We'll never get that. He said, I'm trying to get consensus from 10. <laughs> and he said it like as a tongue-in-cheek comment, but he was very serious. And I think we need to keep, um, keep, you know, keep, our, keep that in our mind because oftentimes a lot of our effort is, is not applied. And we, we kind of tend to, many of us tend to give up because we have this expectation that everybody has to be down with the movement and everybody doesn't. Most movements, they're not popular. Anything that really, I think if we, if we do the analysis through history and we look at any type of movement that has been effective and that has really affected serious systemic change, it doesn't start with, it's never popular at first. It doesn't start with, with everybody. Everybody's not on board. People are going to hate on it. People are going to, you know, disagree. And, and not to say that disagreeing is bad because we, we do need disagreement because we need to flush out and, you know, flush out the kinks you know, in the in the holes and in, in the position, and, and find out like what's the what's the best approach and what's the better approach. Because maybe that's the things that the people that have have developed the idea have not considered. So we do need those other voices, but we have to focus more on those people that that are are down. It's kind of like when you go to conferences and or go to events, and you say, "Wow, you know, this is such an important message. You know, this room should be, you know, filled. You know, this room should be filled up. It's only like five people. I mean, even if we watch old lectures of, you know, people like Amos Wilson and Dr. Clark, and then you look in the audience and you see like, okay, on this particular lecture, it's all these empty chairs. And we're like, why are these people not, why wasn't it full? And part of that is, part of that is marketing. Like I said, a lot of these, these events are not marketed heavily enough, but we also have to realize that the people that are there, those are the people that were supposed to be there. Those are the ambassadors. So then those become the people. And then again, this is a mathematical concept. When we talk about exponential growth, you know, those people that are there, then they, they go each talk to some people. And then they build their own, like, silos and their own little spaces where there's conversations and that information is spread. And then those people go talk to people. And then those people go talk to people. And then all those people get together and they say, okay, well, we're, we're building this. They say, okay, well, I'm, how can I support you, brother? How can I support you, sir? And then it's just like we just we just lower our focus and instead of kind of looking, you know, if I can use a baseball analogy, instead of looking for the home run, hit the ball out the park, and we just hit a, hit a little, you know, hit a little base hit up the middle. Keep hitting base hits up the middle, and then we keep advancing the runners, and we can keep scoring. We score that way. But what happens is we get the base hits up the middle. Our fo- our idea is that we're supposed to hit a home run every time. If we don't hit a home run, we feel like it's failure, and we feel like, you know, we get discouraged far too easily. So what we got to do is just work with work with who's doing the work and then that'll grow and then a lot of times sometimes you gotta you know we gotta figure out where to leave just to leave people where they are but don't let that discourage us um and sometimes we focus on you know building the youth because the youth are the, are, the, are the future anyway a lot of a lot of adults are already set in their ways and a lot of adults they don't have the capacity to make any real changes 
you know, they just don't believe it. They can't see it. They can't see the vision. So, you know, you end up, you know, it's like you got to ask yourself the question, like, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to argue with, with adult, with grown men and women, or are you going to, you know, kind of try to create something, create something, some type of space or some type of institution where you can kind of, um, you know, influence young people that are, that, you know, so 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they'll be the adults and they'll be in position and something. They'll have the confidence that this can work because of the conversation that you had with them when they were five years old and when they were 10 years old. And, you know, and then also you have to give them something of value too. That's another thing I think about um, in terms of like math tutoring, just something like, there's a lot of, a lot of people tutor math. A lot of people tutor a lot of subjects, right? But it's like, okay, I, I tutored you in math. So maybe one day, you know, um, somebody starts talking to you about Pan-Africanism 10 years from now or, or whenever sometime in the future. And then you say, okay, well, that brother, he used to tutor me in math. He helped me pass out to the one. And he was a sturdy brother. So maybe this Pan-Africanism stuff has some credibility and some validity. Because I think that's another thing that I realize we have to work on is providing tangible products and services to our people so that way, when we stand up and start talking about political ideology, they don't just look at us like, huh? That sound crazy. But it's like, no, you, you know, but you know I'm not crazy because I provided you with something of, that you, of value that you wanted and that you knew you needed. So then it's like, oh, yeah, that's the old head. He, he looked out for me. He helped me do this. He helped me do that. He taught me this. And because he taught me that, that helped put money in my pocket. So now whatever he's talking about, when he's talking about political ideology, when he's talking about culture, now I want to listen to what he's saying. So I think, and that makes us more, that, that makes us, that, that makes us more relevant to the everyday brother and sister on the corner. And I think that's, that's another thing that's related to um, my point in response to the caller, that we got to focus on the people that want to do the work. So when we start saying, yeah, but the, we start, we start saying yeah. black people don't, this black people don't want to do that. That just is a reminder to us that we're not talking to the right black people. We got to talk to some other black people. And it's a lot of us. We're, we're around. We're just talking to the wrong black people. So again, but again, that puts the onus on us. That puts the respons- responsibility on us to go out and do a better job or a different job of finding some different black people to talk to or some different black people to work with. That's how I look at that. Yeah, but you know, the, rea- the reality also is at some point in time, we just going to have to divorce ourselves from these gatekeepers and figure out a way how to move forward without them because the gatekeepers are always are always going to be here it's their job it's their job unfortunately to keep us in the position that we in as black folks that's why they never want to hear them uh, they never want to hear you talk about sovereignty they never Uh want you to critique or say anything bad about white folks they never want you to separate from certain institutions and things of that nature. And when it's all said and done, like Elliot said earlier, they done already put themselves in the position to enjoy this madness and to set their kids up to be able to continue whatever sort of legacy economically that they've been able to set up. But on the collective, we as a people are not moving forward because, you know, we're not building the necessary institutions to be able, to be honest, to sustain ourselves. 
our whole lives are based on, unfortunately, that segment is what white folks go give them and what white folks go do to them. But you know, I I, I, I keep, I keep, I keep, I mean, and, and you're looking at, you're looking at a side, I, you're reading, we're, we're looking at the tea leaves and what I see is we're reading the tea leaves differently. Um, because from what I get, you when you look at the tea leaves in relationship to what we are doing, you don't, you see what you see and, and it seems to be a a, a, a constant observation, perception. So when I look at the TV, I see that the reaction, again, just using this, what Elliot brought up and, and what um, Brother Akil mentioned, the, the, that, that what their, what the state, what the, the parties are responding to, even in bringing in new faces to, to have black faces in these places that is a response to what is happening amongst us mm -hmm. that is showing that they better do something, something. to get us back in line right. yeah i agree partially partially you can't be partial i mean always you know. have to you always gotta have the gatekeepers you always well, have that's to, not my point that's not to, my that's to, not my point that's not my point. Whether they gotta have gatekeepers, the point is that the that the, what was in place with the gatekeepers that they had wasn't being effective as they needed to be. And for that's what's why they replaced them. No, but that's, that's the, you why got, they replaced them. You still on the gatekeepers and not looking at what Brother Akil was saying is the of what is going on because the, yes. Again, structurally, yes, they got to have the gatekeepers, but why do they have to replace them? That's the critical The question. reason why they That's have to replace them is because of young brothers like Brother Kill who are coming forward with a That's new and maybe a broader but, but message. The, so, so, so who is, who is, you who is more, who, but who is more powerful in this moment? The, the gatekeepers that they need to replace or the Brother Kills that are coming along? And we, and we ain't talking about just the brother Kills and others, you know, um, brother Tommy and the, and the sister, sister Lavinia. It's always the point is that they, I mean, when you look out, Brazil just had, I think it's it 10,000 people. I think that's Brazil just had 10,000 people to remove the, the far right, which this country is aligned with the far right person that's in political office. The, the the overture that France just made with Rwanda to 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 publicly say yes we were in we we were in, a great instigator in the massacre the the human atrocity between the hit uh, 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 the Hutus and the Tutsis and and and, and even those of the um, of, of Germany making amends in Namibia. The, what what when we put it in a broader what's happening they're they're changing the gatekeepers or they have to up their game because the right. game is being up victory is being demonstrated on this side of the chessboard now you can look at well look what they're doing and you can stay on that and that's why i say you're looking at that side of the t you're reading the tv right. from that point 
But if you read the tea leaves from this point, then you're asked, yes, you know, what is it we need to do to fortify the the movement and the strength that they're demonstrating? Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm glad you said um, everything you said because as I was listening to you, I was I was reminded of something. And this is very important, so I'm, I'm glad you said it because I it reminds me that you know this this old head used to live on my block and you know right down in North Philly. And he one day he said he said you know um, when we get you know he saw the cops. You know the cops were like at, at some point this was like some years back and they were like posted up on on the corner. This is when I guess this was an initiative that they had, and he kind of like jokingly said he's like we get rough, they get rougher. Right, so I understood the context in which he was talking about that, but I like I think about that here, and it actually makes me again back to neo-colonialism. So I mean, we in the moment we look at neo-colonialism as neo-colonialism as a negative concept, and it is a negative concept in and of itself. But when we think to your point, uh, Richard, what we have to realize too is that it gives us a reason for optimism because neo-colonialism is only only comes about when colonialism is not enough to sustain the domination of us within that particular system. So they have to, it's almost like because neo-colonialism is just colonialism 2.0, but if colonialism was strong enough in and of itself, meaning the people, our people were so weak and so unconscious and unaware that they could just, they could just continue with that system, that basic fundamental system. But what it does is it shows, it shows and expresses a, a manifestation and tangible examples of, the, the power of our people and our, our ability to resist and to, to fight back and to, say, and, to, and to say no, to affirm our humanity and say, nah, we're not going to let y'all do this. We're going to, you know, we're going to organize and we're going to, you know, develop, um, you know, organizations and whatnot. And again, so it, it, we go back to marketing again. A lot of times we don't even, and even myself, and that's why I was like, I'm glad you said that because you triggered a thought in my mind because even in my own marketing, a lot of time it is a lot of gloom and doom. And it's not enough looking at the same thing as a as an as a recognition of of power of of power of of power on our own part, because you know, like you talk about, you know, gatekeepers and whatnot, and the fact that they have to do that, it's like, yo, they got to put these they got to put these Negroes in position and give them platforms and promote these this narrative and this propaganda because they know that if they don't, then we will get free. I mean, I believe we're going to get free anyway. It's just, it's just a matter of time. Like in math, the variable is X. X represents time. That's the only variable. Freedom is, you know, freedom is a foregone conclusion for me. I may not see it in my physical lifetime, and I'm cool with that. But I'm still going to do the work so that somebody's going to see it, whether it be my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. That's cool. But if I don't do the work in my lifetime, then it'll just push it back. It'll just take longer for it to happen. And I think that's just the mentality that we have to adopt. But we do have to start. I think. I think we should like start looking at even um, when they ramp up the uh, you know the oppressive tactics or the repressive tactics. We can look at that as a win because that means that wait, okay, so that means that we have done something. We have responded in a certain way through their activity that you know they didn't they didn't plan on. They couldn't foresee. So that means they. <laughs> Like like my old like the old head on my block said, you know, when we get rough, they get rough. So that means we got rough. But if we was just sitting there just weak and wasn't getting rough, they wouldn't have to get rough. So they're really reacting to us. Right. Yeah, but if you but if they get rough but if they get rough, after you get rough, the problem that happens with us as the people we don't get rough for. 
we decide we at that we, point. Okay. Nah, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think we have because if you look at what happened with Elliot was talking it on, about, it depends on with, what length of history you're looking at. It depends on what length. Yeah, of I'm history getting ready to tell you. I'm getting ready to tell you from the point that Richie was, Elliot was talking about when he was, I guess, speaking um, about the Billion Man March, and mm-hmm. to whereas. After he said we had the billionaire march, and did they destroy black media? Now, where are we at right now in regards to any form of mass communication? What have we done to replace what we've lost with black media? Where are we at now as far as well, our well, community? Well, wait a minute. You, you're doing, where, you're, where are we at? You're, you're doing it now. You're doing right, it now. Right, right, right. Listen, no, 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 let me explain it to you. Wait a minute. Let me explain it to you. They they thought they was cutting the legs out from under black people when they put that telecommunications act in. Then all of a sudden, here comes the internet. And white folks excited. Everybody, Everybody's using it. Now, at first, when black folks was using it to talk about uh Look at Beyonce and look at they went, look what I ate tonight and all types of stuff. Oh, look at me, look at my new suit, my car. Oh, oh they, listen, they overjoyed when you use it for that purpose. But then black po- folks start using it to get messages out, to talk about news from a black perspective, to talk about issues. Then all of a sudden, here comes talk about net neutrality. And we got to monitor what's going on. See, listen, every time the man tries to do something, our people counter it. And sometimes we don't even realize we countering it. But he does because he studies us. We don't do spend enough time studying him like a Brother Keel was saying. We need to study his tactics. If we use a historical perspective dealing with him, then we won't be fooled or dismayed by some of his actions. But you have to, you have to, you have to. And, 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 and it's okay if, 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 if it's a segment going to, again, what Brother Akil said, if it's a segment of us that don't believe that we can be victorious, there is something that those who do believe that we can be, be victorious, that, that can be helpful in our grand strategy in the moment. Because it may just be by nature, by pessimism, by plant. A, a mindset within our total community that believes no matter what we do, we'll never do anything right to move us beyond what they initially wanted us to, they initially wanted us to do. Okay, that's a segment in our community. That's not our total community. And those who say that is not our total community is saying, yeah, that might be the moment for right now, what you're describing, but we do believe we can win. Not we go, we, we, we think we can win. Not we, we would like we to win. Not we wish we can win. We do believe, and not in our lifetime, maybe not in our children's lifetime, not in our grandchildren, but whenever it happens, what I'm doing right now is because I believe we can, we, we will win. That's a different well, mindset. Well, Richie, and, and I'll say this you know. to you. Mm. I'll say this to you. Every knockout has to be set up 
It just doesn't become a knockout. You have to set a knockout, a knockout out. You got to either go to the body. You either got to jazz. You got to fake. You got to do all the things necessary to deliver the knockout punch. And unfortunately, we at this time haven't been able to put things in play on the broad level to set up the knockout that we need. I mean, that's where we got to get to the point where we can set it up for the knockout. And, I mean, this is the work that young people like Brother Khalil and and, and the work that Richard and others are are doing the – the, the groundwork on. But unfortunately, we up against not only a beast that's the white man, but the gatekeepers, the Angela Rise and the rest of them, who are trying to put forward a narrative that, oh, we built this country and this and that and that and this, but we just want to be close to the white folk. We want white folk to appreciate what we've done and to show appreciation for what we've given them. Now, I don't want no appreciation. I don't want nothing from you. I want you to leave me the hell alone and let me do what I have to do for not only myself, but for my people. And, you know, that's why, you know, when you look at certain things that are happening today, you know, this is slightly off topic, but it's all in, in, in the grand scheme of things. You have somebody that's so attracted to what's going on with this Kwame Brown thing. And the whole thing about Kwame Brown shows you is sometimes you just got to leave the bear alone and let the bear stay asleep because when the bear wake up, the bear go wreck havoc. If he's still in the hibernation mode, now, if you wake him up while he's in hibernation mode, then he go act the fool. But... If it was his time to wake up, you know, he he's a probably chill. They caught Kwame in hibernation mode, so now, you know, he's doing his thing. Now, how long it's lasting, what's going to be gained about it is something we don't know. But I say this to you, if you don't look at the likes of Stephen A. Smith and the Charlemagne and the rest of them in a different light, and you don't cancel them because they need to be canceled if the truth be told, then you just gonna be in the same the same situation. And I'm not saying that to elevate Kwame Brown because I think he's a little bit off base um in his analysis when you listen to him, but the evil that Stephen A. Smith continues to do and the rest of those individuals like him I think we have to, at some point in time, hold them accountable. But listen, man, as always, it's good to hear Brother Akil and um, Richard and, and Elliot, man. And um, if you can, man, check out check out that Michael Harriet on, on Twitter or even check him out in the root online because the guy writes some real good stuff. And I hope you get the opportunity to get him on um Elliot, because I think it'll be a real interesting conversation because he's a gatekeeper in a sense also, but he is at least a little more honest, and he will attack white folks more than the Reeds and the rest of them do. 
But listen, have a good night, brother. I'll put me on hold so I can hear the rest of the show. Hotel. Talk to you. Hotel. Brother Keel, shoot, I know we didn't kept you. You might probably angry. But uh, <laughs> but <laughs> before we go, man, just let everybody know what you – and listen, we're going to talk because I want to kind of – uh, incorporate what you're doing on, uh, you know, with the uh, what we're doing here at Time for an Awakening, but uh, we'll talk about that soon, and then hopefully the people will be enjoying some of the things that you're talking about and have their children uh, to be able to see these things. But uh, before we go, let the folks know how they can reach you, how they can, uh, uh, you know, uh, how the children can see some of the material and, and children and adults. To be honest, I need it myself. I need to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. T- tell us uh, how we can uh, do those things. Yeah, this is this is for everybody. I'm 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 trying to democratize the distribution of, of mathematics, like is being done in so many other areas of uh, Western society. With you know them uh, make giving ease of at, like removing some of the barriers of entry to like you know the stock market and investing and you know just learning about different things. So I'm trying to offer that you know offer mathematics understanding to our community as well making it making it easier to get access because really what happens is you typically go to school you sit in your math class you may understand the lesson you may not understand the lesson and then it kind of just stops there so if you don't understand it you just don't understand it there's really not a lot of um, structured tutoring available in a lot of schools not a lot of academic support teachers are under a lot of a lot of pressure to move through curriculums and then there's uh, or curricula i should say um and then there's standardized testing and those demands and whatnot. So, you know, you're just kind of left um, just not understanding. And then it, the problem compounds because then the next school year, you need to know those prerequisites, those, that prerequisite information in order to do well in the next class. And you never learned it last year. So now you can't even really do the new material. So what, what all this math does and with the YouTube channel, what we're doing is we're providing content, you know, break, broken down problems. You know, video content, that's uh, video support, self-paced. You can pause, rewind, fast forward, just like how you do anything that you look at on YouTube um, that, you know, the young people are very familiar with. You know, adults are very familiar with it, too, many of us. And, uh, you know, you can go to the page. It's it's www.youtube.com forward slash C. I'll read it again in case anyone's writing this down. Uh, forward slash all this math one word all this math so basically youtube.com forward slash the letter c as in car and another forward slash and all this math one word you can go there and like i said i'm adding content on a regular basis and i'll be adding a lot more content a lot more videos this summer um you know so by next school year there'll be even more more content available for for the young people also for the mothers and fathers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whoever that want to help, you know, their children, their nieces and nephews, little cousins, whoever, uh, with, with their math. And also for teachers, for teachers to use for support. And it's, you know, it's culturally, culturally relevant to us because, you know, there's, there's thousands of math videos, you know, and I, I use those videos a lot of times because I just, I just need the content, you know, because mm-hmm. I already have um, a level of expertise in a lot of the content. But sometimes you forget things. I, you know, I check out the videos that other people put up, but I'm like, if I was a, if I was a child or a teenager or a young person and I saw this video, because like, a lot of stuff is corny. That's one thing. A lot of stuff is corny. And, um, again, it's not culturally relevant to our people. 
You know, it's not it's not consistent with our culture. And it needs it's consistent with somebody's culture, but it's not ours. And you know, that's that whole. You know, a lot of people make the argument that oh, well, math is universal, and math is it's not necessarily universal. Not in that. Not in some to a certain degree. And that's maybe you know one day we should have a conversation about Marimba Ani and her work in Yoruba, where she she has a chapter on the universalism as a tool of uh, I don't know if she, I don't, I'm paraphrasing the title of the chapter, but it basically critiques the idea of universalism, and because ba- essentially what Europeans do or what Yoruba do is they take an idea or a cultural practice that is theirs, and then they try to superimpose it on everybody else in the rest of the world, and they call it universal. They say, oh, this is universal. Well, no, it's not universal. It's just what y'all do. Y'all want everybody else to think that they should do things the same way. You're not slick, <laughs> right? So, um, so again, that's why a lot of people probably will push back on the culturally responsive pedagogy movement because they say, oh, well, this is universal. So you don't need to, it doesn't need to be specifically relevant to this particular culture because it's universal. Well, I mean, it already is culturally relevant. You know, it just happens to be relevant to this particular uh, group of people or this particular um, culture, you know, which is usually white people. And there's a lot of that on YouTube. And that's, you know, that's to be understood. You know, even the Khan Academy videos are like that. And, you know, so what I'm saying is um, I haven't found a lot of people that, are, that have a lot of math content. I found some people, um, some black people that have math content um, that seems culturally relevant to us. And I would like for more of us to even, you know, start creating. Because, again, what that does is we can leverage the Internet. Like you said, the same thing with radio programming and, you know, podcasting and whatnot. You know, after the FCC Act of 1996 came about, people responded. You know, like, again, they get they get rough, we get rougher, right? So we, we get rough, they get rougher, whatever. But we still respond and still continue to move forward, right? So um, in terms of education, we can uh, – you know, kind of leverage, you know, the use of the internet, and so we can reach reach our children, reach our youth, and it's a way for us to take responsibility for the education of our own. Nobody's coming to save us. White people are not going to come save us, uh, and we shouldn't want them to. Because that's the problem. Because if they if they dare come to save us, come and save us, then they'd be able to control, you know, everything we do. You know, because if they give us something, they can take it away. <laughs> So we want to put ourselves in a position where we can provide everything for ourselves. So I'm just hoping that, you know, we can use the All This Math YouTube channel as a space for black people to go learn math and get um, further instruction and supplemental instruction on anything that they're being held responsible for in any of their classes. That's that's my, my vision for it. And I want it to be a popular, regular, um, well-known resource, well-known YouTube channel. Um similar to a lot of YouTube channels or Instagram pages or Twitter pages that a lot of our people know about. I want it to become that recognizable and that well-known. Um, and also, if anybody is on you know, social media, you can follow the Instagram page at All This Math, all one word, All This Math. And the Facebook page is at All This Math as well. There's a Facebook business page, All This Math. All right. And, yeah. All right, brother. We'll be in touch. We'll talk soon. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Take care now. All right. Peace. Peace. Richard, we went a little overtime, man, but it was a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. Glad to have Brother Keel join us, and uh, I'm going to be talking with him about some future things that that we're going to try to do uh, uh, in coordination with what he's doing. Great. 
before we go. You know what? I, w- I want to. Uh, I, we'll do that the next program. I want to. Um, it's a it's a article that was in uh, the Herald, which is in Bobby's paper. You know the paper that uh, Obi right. is a uh, the correspondent for. Wrote something in reference to um, what they were doing in reference to this pandemic. You know, we discussed with Tanzania and Malawi, not Malawi, uh, Madagascar was doing as far as a prevention, cure. Well, mm-hmm. uh, Zimbabwe was doing something. And um, it was, in, it was very, it's very interesting, Richard. You know, we're we looking at these vaccines that have been put forward. Um, China had one. Mm-hmm. Well, Russia. Uh, Europeans, U.S. not U.S. because it was created, it was uh, formulated in in Europe. One, I think, one in Germany and one in uh, England or something, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, and they, you know, they were shipped here. So you got had a European one, which is the ones that we have here, and then you got, you know, with, if you got a few minutes, I'll just share a portion of this article, or you want to hold it off until next time. Go ahead. Uh, let me, let me find it here. Um, hold on a second. Give me one second. Uh, the, the article, and this was in Quartz, Africa. The other one is in the Herald. I'll read the one out of Quartz, Africa first. Uh, the title of it is COVID-19 vaccine face trust gap against some traditional African remedies. Uh, in the early days of COVID-19, and this is from uh, March the 10th of this year. In the early days of COVID-19, people in Zimbabwe to Tanzania turned to home remedies for a disease about which little was known. But now even uh, African countries begin rolling out uh a vaccine program many could stick uh many did decide excuse me many uh decided still to stick with traditional remedies amid a serious surge in cases after people traveled over christmas season throughout south africa where a new variant had been spreading zimbabwe began vaccinating uh healthcare workers and frontline workers last week uh but between the fear of the new vaccines and low supply across the continent. Uh, interviews in Zimbabwe suggest that still many plan and perhaps have still rely on the herbal treatments. Uh, this has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic as the majority of people in Zimbabwe seem to have more faith and trust in, in, in uh, traditional remedies to prevent and treat COVID-19 illness. Uh, due to vaccination, disinformation, and skepticism. Zimbabwe is not alone. Other African nations, such as Madagascar and Tanzania, authorized and promoted the use of home remedy cures against the COVID-19. It says, uh, the University of Africa, African University, uh, was the first to process and, and develop a drop made uh, from indigenous 
Zumbani plant led by the Department of Health Science. The project is a move forward, harnessing and propagating African heritage-based knowledge in public health. Uh, the, the drops are to be sold as a pharmaceutical drug for now, uh, but a herbal remedy, and they will be available uh, commercially in about a month's time, said African University official. He told Quartz Africa. Now, this drop, Richard, has been developed at the University of Africa, and it's based on an herbal remedy that they were using. Now, let me... Now, this is from... Uh, this one here is from the... Uh, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. Because I got the papers all mixed up. Uh, the Herald, which is uh, the paper that Obi writes for. April, uh, this was in April the 28th, the Herald. Um, while the jury is still out on scientific value of a number of um, traditional remedies to fight COVID-19, the Zubani plant has gained popularity in Africa and beyond and Africa and beyond, owing its uh, for its medicinal properties. While the public has been drinking the herb and using it in a steam, to steam themselves without any form of dosage, researchers show that high dosages and prolonged use of this herb might lead to jaundice, and, uh, and uh, is is the most not- notable result. Regardless, the University of Africa's College of Health and agricultural scientists, sciences is in the process of developing a throat lozenge made from the plant, while a tea producer is making a Zubani variety. The university's principal project investigator, a Dr. Alani Maguri, uh, I can't pronounce her name or his name, said despite its potential of alleviating COVID-19 symptoms, those forms are required to promote safe usage, hence the urgent need for research. The product aims to develop a medicinal cough drop uh, known as from the Lupica Javnica, also known as Zumbani. The drop prototype was produced at the University of Africa a test to test the concept. Besides the oral drops, the project also aims to develop a higher dosage form that can be dissolved in hot water for steaming the airways, says Dr. Mogoria. Mogoria. He said the university will also consider establishing an organic garden for the herb to be sustainably manufactured uh, and produce the product. On the other hand, uh, a highly placed source within the tea producing company uh, who declined to name itself uh, is researching uh, protocols within uh, another designation confirmed to have already started research on a product on a variety of uh, teas from the Zavani plant. We have already taken up the research uh, and process is already underway, says the officials from the University of Africa. Uh, official announcements on outcomes will be made in the due course. Uh, the Confederation of Zimbabwe Industries Vice President Richard 
Chiwande said local science research has has been needed uh was needed as soon as yesterday to ascertain Zumbani's medicinal properties. Zumbani, Zumbani has gained a good track record of effective use over the years. Now that we have the COVID-19 pandemic, credible scientific research is needed so it, it, it is beneficial that the plant can be formally processed and packaged uh, for local and export use. Research has shown that Zambani is a caffeine-free food, uh, says Joseph Mavi. Uh, he added his voice to the research of the plant. We need to research the plant even more. It will be very useful to find out its medicinal properties and how the human race can benefit from processing and a consistent supply. Uh According to the information, the Zumbani plant is a rich source of vital minerals such as cadmium, calcium, chromium, copper, iron, magnesium, psyllium, and zinc. It is therefore believed to possess antiviral, antioxidant, antibacterial, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, anti-diabetic, anti-malarial, anti-antibiotic, anti-allergic, excuse me, allergic, uh, antimicrobial, and analgesic properties. Uh, It is believed the plants prevents the onset of degenerative diseases such as cancer, stroke, diabetes, and hypertension and other chronic illnesses. Uh, it treats fever, especially in cases of malaria, influenza, and measles, and as a bronchial problems such as chronic coughs, uh, asthma, influenza, pneumonia, tuberculosis, uh, shortness of breath, and chest pains, and has blocked runny noses and tonsillitis. It is also believed that Zubani uh, helps to prevent lung infections, lowering abdominal pain, menstrual pain, uh, um, backache and chest pains while showing aptitude to aid blood flow by clearing blood clots and cholesterol. Proponents of Zimbani also believe that it is regular, it, it, through regular use, helps reduce fatigue, insomnia, and uh, chills. In addition, they argue that the Zimbani can help treat acne, uh, eczema, dermatitis, hair loss, and some lichen zambani uh, infertility problem solutions. Mm. So they said that the uh, some of the case studies is going to be coming out soon. So they're using this uh, herbal medicine now in mm-hmm. Zimbabwe along with what they're using in uh, Madagascar and Tanzania. So you got African-based solutions coming out from here. Right. So, you know, it, uh, the more and more we can get more information and hopefully be able to access these other things because I would be more willing to take something that's natural from the earth than something man-made in the lab. Simple right. as that. Right. 
But if you've got black folks in leadership that don't even investigate these things for the benefits of the black public they're supposed to represent, then they're doing the, the public a disservice. Because this, these medias here and these white medias are just going to demonize you for not taking a vaccine, just like those right. articles that I read. That's true. Yeah, so, um, and, and listen, I do apologize for listening on these because believe me, some of those names, they, I couldn't, it was a little difficult to pronounce some of the men's. And I don't know whether they were men, uh, sisters or brothers, but some of the names, it was a little hard to pronounce. But uh, you know what? I might try to reach out to Obi and see if he knows um, the publisher of this particular article, and maybe I can get them on to talk more about uh, this Zimbani uh, plant that they're making into their throat lozenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, listen, before we go this evening, I want to uh, let everybody know about the lineup on Time for an Awakening Media. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Ushi, uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., always interesting dialogue and perspectives with uh, Brother Oshi on African Perspectives. And I, uh, I think Brother Oshi went out there to Tulsa, uh, Richard. Um, oh, yeah? I guess he'll have an interesting show uh, this Monday if he's back. I don't know. Uh, but uh, he, I'm, I'm 90% sure that he went out to Tulsa. Mm. Uh, later on Monday evening, Acres of Diamonds. is uh, That program's on hiatus, but I talked to Brother Jihad today, and he'll be starting up again soon. Uh, from 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central, uh, with host Dr. Maria Kanban and, and uh, Dr. Kamal Kanban. And 9 to 10, Monday evenings, conversation reparations every first and third Monday, and their uh, uh, their program will be next week. That'll be the first Monday in the month. On Tuesday, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. That's uh, eight to ten on time for an awakening media. On Wednesday, it's our time. Uh, the West Georgia Farmers Cooperative, the Black Farmers Program, is on Wednesdays from eight to nine. On Thursday, Black Reality Think Tank Part 2 from 7 to 9, Thursday evening. On Friday, time for an awakening from 8 until Saturdays from 4 to 6, Black Sister Talk with host Lawanda Chambers. And later on Saturday evening from 7 to 9, the elders of Sankofa with host Alfonso Watkins. And then Sunday, time for an awakening is back from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back on Sunday, Lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing
Save the children. 